When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Jared Halverson here. Welcome back to Unshaken. I've been battling a cold all week, and so please uh, bear with my voice. I'm just hoping to make it through today. I've been postponing filming day after day after day in hopes of feeling better. And by now, if I don't film, I don't know if we'll ever make it into the promised land. And so it's go time. Uh, I'll try to channel my inner Boyd K. Packer and Spencer W. Kimball in hopes that a little gravelly, raspy sound will add to the gravitas of the book of Joshua. Not that it needs our help. This is an incredible book of Scripture. Maybe this is just the Lord's sense of humor shining through, that as I've been preparing this week to teach the Battle of Jericho, I've been blowing my nose so many times that it's really gotten me in the spirit because it's felt like seven days of blowing trumpets. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to keep some of that to myself. Uh, but the stories that we're going to be studying today, some of them famous, like Jericho, like the crossing of the Jordan River, some less known, like the story of Achan or the Gibeonites. Uh, there's some amazing things in the book of Joshua, and I look forward to discussing them with you today. It actually also marks an incredible uh, transition for all of us. Uh, we have finished the five books of Moses. Uh, congratulations to you all, especially after the last three weeks. I know I have been trying even your patience uh, you intrepid, unshaken saints, because the lessons have been so long, and I don't know how to do it otherwise if we try to cover everything. And we still didn't even cover everything. You can't do verse by verse in the Old Testament. But uh, I know that the last three weeks, to get through Leviticus in a single sitting, to get through Numbers in a, in a lesson, to get through Deuteronomy, to try to do as close to a complete coverage as possible— that is a monumental feat. And so if you made it through those last three weeks, uh, you deserve some kind of memorialization. Uh, we should etch your, stone, your, your names on the back of the stone tablets. How's that? Uh, lay them up in the Ark of the Covenant uh, as, a, as a reminder that you've done an amazing thing to, to plow through that much scripture in so little time. Uh, some have been worried, are, are they all gonna be this long? And no, we're getting down to shorter books of scripture and I'm grateful for that for all of our sake. Uh, some have wondered, why don't you just do the, the short parts like, like everybody else, or just stick to the scriptures that are part of the curriculum? Uh, and part of me is tempted, believe me, but also I'm trying to do what perhaps as we've never tried to do before, and that's really teach in there as close to entirety as possible these standard works. When I first started teaching seminary, and I'd, at the end of a lesson, I'd, I'd come in just uh, frustrated, at, uh, thinking, I, yeah, the class was great, but we didn't cover everything that I wanted to. And my wise old colleagues will always reassure me and say, Jared, it's not the last time they'll study this stuff. They'll get it every four years for the rest of their lives. And that was reassuring until I realized, yeah, they'll get the same parts every four years and they'll skip the same parts every four years. And will we ever really study all that the Lord has given us? And so my hope uh, in spending so much time with you 
is to give you a chance, even if it's just a one and done, to be able to say, I've read it all. I think there's power in being able to say, I have studied from cover to cover the Holy Bible. And if that means some long days uh, in the Word of God, all the better. Uh, but I do hope that as we go forward with some smaller books or books that are broken up over multiple weeks, that we'll get down to, uh, to manageable portion sizes. How's that sound? Now, uh, we also mark a transition going from, like I said, the five books of Moses. We finished the Pentateuch, if you're a Greek speaker, or the Torah, if you are a Hebrew speaker. And that's known as the law. Okay, those five books. Now we're going to transition into what they call the historical books. And so we will see that in Joshua and Judges, in the two Samuels, the two Kings, the two Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those, this carries us through the history of Israel. Once that's done, then we'll shift genre and we'll begin studying what they call the, the writings. And this is wisdom literature like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And then we shift to the prophetic books. We'll start with the major prophets, Isaiah first and foremost, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then we'll spend time in the minor prophets, though don't ever call them that to their face. Uh, the 12 last books that we'll study in November or December of this year uh, really are some powerful, incredible things uh, that lie ahead. And so let's dive in. Now, to make sense of Joshua, perhaps the best way to introduce him is the way that the Bible did, as far as the end of Deuteronomy is concerned. If you remember at the end of last week, this couldn't have been written by Moses because it was reflecting upon his passing from, from the Israelites, and it was giving him one, one last word of, of praise. Uh, but how's this, not just as commendation for Moses, but as introduction to Joshua? Deuteronomy 34, verse, 34, verse 10. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, can you imagine that as your introduction? Oh, uh, Moses, now there was a prophet for you. He's the only prophet we've ever known. He carried us all the way from Egypt to the, the banks of the Jordan River, ready to bring us into the Promised Land. He provided for our every need. Uh, hungry? Well, here comes the manna. Thirsty? Moses, could you hit this rock? Uh, he carried us through our wilderness wanderings, and God knew him face to face. There is never going to be another prophet quite like Moses. Anyway, take it away, Joshua. Uh, and you picture him just standing there like, seriously? Did you have to set me up like that? Poor soul with such incredible shoes to fill. Now, we've seen this uh, in, in other books of Scripture. We saw it at the end of last year in the Doctrine and Covenants. Poor Brigham Young having to fill the shoes of Joseph Smith. Uh, we'll see it a little bit later. Poor Elisha having to fill the shoes of Elijah. Uh, U.S. history. Poor John Adams having to take the place of George Washington. Uh, well, if any of those people feel bad, Peter's there to say, uh, I've got you all beat since my predecessor beat all of your predecessors. Uh, can you imagine trying to fill the shoes of Jesus Christ? I actually once talked to a group of seminary students about shoes they feel that they must fill. And it was amazing to hear them talk about their parents and their grandparents. And how will I be anything compared to them? Them talking about the pioneers. Uh, we've talked about this with the wonder, wonder, die, wonder, die generations. And will we just be another one? Or will we be able to fill the shoes of those people who have left us such a legacy of faith. 
One student said an, a fascinating thing yeah, that still sticks with me 20 years later. He said, what about our own shoes? And when, they, when he first said it, I thought to myself, what? You feel your own shoes. They're your shoes for crying out loud. They're, they're made to fit. But then he said, I mean, think about who we were in pre-mortality. If we were perhaps among those noble and great ones that God saved for this final inning, uh, this last dispensation of the fullness of times, if we're here to try to prepare the earth for the second coming, that's daunting. And if my pre-mortal shoes are one size, and I look at my mortal feet of clay and wonder, will I ever be who I'm supposed to be? I read my patriarchal blessing and realize that it's laying out a lifetime that I hope I can live up to. Will I fill my own shoes? That was a profound insight. Now, to think about Joshua with incredible shoes to fill, and how will I possibly do that? If any of you have stepped into a calling uh, to take the place of a predecessor who seems irreplaceable, well, they probably are. But you're not called to replace them. You're called to succeed them. And if there's anything to understand from Joshua, at least at these first, these initial chapters, understand that it was never about Joshua, nor was it ever about Moses, which means it's not about you nor about your predecessor. It's about the mantle of Moses passing to Joshua. It's about the Spirit of God that infused Moses' ministry with power, continuing that same work through the hands of of a successor in Joshua. In fact, we will see in the first few chapters especially, these echoed experiences, ways that God was with Moses that will repeat in the ministry of Joshua as reassurance and reconfirmation, I'm still here. And that hasn't changed, no matter who my, my mortal mouthpiece might be. In fact, I'll say this too, and then we'll dive in. Yes, Moses did things that Joshua, you'll never do. But guess what? You, Joshua, will do things Moses never accomplished either. Namely, you're going to bring the people into the promised land. Moses got them to this point, but you will get them over it. He gets them to the promised land. You get them into the promised land. And that's incredible, especially when you understand the symbolism there. Because Joshua, we've seen this since we began in Genesis chapter 1, uh, Moses chapter 1 actually, that there are types and shadows of Jesus Christ running throughout the Old Testament. Both male and female, we've seen dozens of them already. And Joshua will be another one. Now, I thought Moses was our type of Christ. He is, right? We saw that prophecy that there will be a prophet come like unto him, and that that would be the Messiah, that would be Jesus. And yet, Joshua is such an incredible type and shadow of Jesus. And in case you missed it, he's got the same name. Jesus is an English oh, transliteration. But his name, the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the one he would have called himself and that his friends and family would have called him was Yeshua, which is Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. God saves and God is going to save the people through Joshua's ministry. He's going to save them from their wilderness wanderings and get them finally, finally to their promised land. Isn't that what Jesus does for all of us? 
In fact, how's this for symbolism? As I said, Moses gets you to the promised land, but he cannot get you in. The only one who can finally do that will be Yeshua. It will be Joshua. It will be Jesus. So think about this in terms of a differentiation between the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel of Yeshua. Okay, Joshua being our poster child today. And if you wanted to put this into chart form, having Moses on one side and Yeshua on the other, like I said, law of Moses versus gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's make it a little even more personal. Put works on the left column and grace on the right, outward obedience on the Moses side, and inner rebirth on the side of Joshua slash Jesus. Justification would belong in the first column, but sanctification can only be found in the second. You see, I've got so many wonderful born-again Christian friends that express concern, and that's a light way of saying it, that Latter-day Saints come across as being so oh, works-oriented that it becomes almost an attempt on our part, at least the way they see it, as us trying to earn our way to heaven, to work our way in, to pay God back, perhaps. And that's not the case. That's not the doctrine of grace that we find in the Bible, nor in the Book of Mormon. We know that it is by grace that we are saved. But what do we do to open ourselves to the grace that God is giving us so freely? What do we do to, to retrain our reflexes so that instead of stiff-arming the grace of God, we have, we have open arms to receive it? That's where works come in. Not to earn anything, but to relearn. Like I said, those righteous reflexes, wax on, wax off, to get to a point where we stop fighting God and we begin following Him with full purpose of heart. I love the symbolism of Moses preparing the way so that Joshua can finally bring Israel home. And to think of all the works that God has asked of us, not, not to pay Him off or pay Him back, but simply to reconcile our wills to the will of God. And we've seen that through the book of Numbers, through the book of Exodus, through Deuteronomy and so forth, just trying to retrain Israel so that they will be repentant, so that they'll be humble, so that they'll be meek like Moses to the point that they're ready and willing to accept the gift of the Abrahamic covenant, posterity, priesthood, and promised land, which they're finally able to obtain today. I hope, my friends, that we see our activity in the church, and we see the magnification of our callings, and we see all of this work, work, work that we do, not as payment, not as debt to God, which then forces God into debt to us. No. This is preparation. This is all that we've studied so far, our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But now it's up to Joshua to help us across the river. It's up to Jesus to bring us safely home. And I, for one, am so grateful to have been taught to live the law and to keep the commandments. I'm grateful to 
to be able to be active in the church. But I know where it stands compared to, to the person I kneel before. And that is my Savior, Yeshua. And so as we, as we shift from Moses to Joshua, please understand the importance of shifting mentally, spiritually, from some focus on works righteousness into a true acceptance of the grace of God. Both are absolutely necessary, but it is only Joshua that gets us across the river. Please keep that in mind. Now, to help us understand how we need to be ready, Joshua 1 is an incredible place to begin. Verse 1, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister. I love that title for him, Moses' minister. Joshua's worn a lot of hats already. He was their general, uh, the army, when they first fought the Amalekites way back in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, He was Moses' minister those 40 days up on Sinai. Amazing how close to, to Moses Joshua has always been. Uh, someone that's visible, that people know. This is a lot like Brigham Young. And all that Brigham has done, uh, learning from Joseph Smith on Zion's camp and so on. But the fact that God is now willing to speak to him. This is Doctrine and Covenants 136. A beautiful canonized piece of evidence that God speaks with Joseph Smith's successors and didn't confine himself only to the prophet of the restoration. So God is now speaking to Joshua and says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Now we learned last week, and we saw with the help of Alma, that no, Moses, God's servant, is not dead. Then why say it this way? Well, because for all intents and purposes, as far as Israel was concerned, he was gone. Uh, Yes, he'd been translated. Yes, there was more work for him to do, but not in the lives of these particular people, which means it was time for them to move on and move forward. It would do Israel no good if they were just pining away for the past there at the base of Mount Nebo, waiting, hoping someday for Moses to descend. No. As far as we're concerned, the past is behind us, and Joshua, it's on you. It's next man up. We're moving forward. And to be able to to feel that way, if we're ever going to get over our wilderness wanderings, if we're ever going to enter the promised land, and chapter 1 of Joshua gives us some great counsel in how to do so, then perhaps that's our first piece of advice. Let the past die. Even the incredible leaders that have gotten us to this point. I'm so impressed with President Nelson's willingness to live by this. Nobody sustained past prophets quite like President Nelson, and yet I've never seen someone so open to change. Almost feels like he's going through every line of the Church Handbook of Instructions and asking the Quorum of the Twelve and his counselors, what do you think? Keep it? Change it? Uh, Heavenly Father, any adjustments you'd like us to make? And to have that kind of courage to move forward, to honor the past, but not to feel so beholden to it. There's a contrary here, okay? That we don't innovate for the sake of, just the sake of innovation, okay? If it's not broken, don't fix it. But 
there are some things that need to be let go when God gives us new direction. And we need to be open to that. In verse 5, the Lord says to Joshua, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. And then the ultimate reassurance, As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. You see, Joshua, it never was about Moses. He was overwhelmed the first time I talked to him. You probably know how he feels by now. And yet, when he said, who am I? I gently reassured him. Uh, Yeah, good question. Who are you? It doesn't really matter. It's who am I? And I am that I am. And I was that with Moses. I'll be that with you. And especially, like I said, those of you who are stepping into big shoes, just wait for the Lord to fill your, to, to, to stretch your feet. It's an amazing thing. He will be with you. And then God gives Joshua the same counsel repeated three times. President Iron used to say that repetition is meant to rivet our attention. So let's rivet it on this. And it's such important advice to anyone ready to to cross the Jordan and begin conquering their promised land. In verse 6, he says it, be strong and of a good courage. In 7, he says it, only be thou strong and very courageous. In verse 9, he says it again, have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. That's what it's going to take. It will take spiritual strength beyond what we've settled for in the past. It will take a courage in Christ beyond what we've mustered previously if we ever hope to truly enter the promised land. Now, prepare the conquest of our Canaan so that Christ can come. What I love about these three, though, is although it's the same, in fact, I'll even say this, that's the exact phrase that Moses gave to Joshua himself back in Deuteronomy. And I wonder if that's one of the Lord's ways of again reassuring Joshua, you weren't called by Moses. And it wasn't him just like, I don't know, there's no, I've been hanging around with these people the last 40 years and there's not many good options. Uh, Joshua, you doing anything for the next little while? No, it wasn't Moses' choice, nor was it simply his counsel. It's coming from me. And so, yes, it was Moses' hands on you and Moses' words ringing in your head, but now it's me. I'll be with you. And I am telling you now, directly, you've got to be strong. You've got to be courageous, Joshua. Now, same counsel in those three verses, but there's also just slight differences in each of the three, giving Joshua and us some advice on how to become strong and courageous along those lines. In verse 6, for example, he says, Be strong and have a good courage, but then notice what he adds. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Where does our strength and courage come from? From knowing that we are involved in helping God keep his promises. Joshua, I'm trying to give to your people the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know how long I've been waiting? (laughs) I want to fulfill my word, and I'm going to do it through you. 
And once we know that God is behind this, that he's with us, that he's trying to accomplish the things that he's always intended to do, he's trying to keep his word, and he is the word. And so how could we not have courage in that? God will do what he's promised. And if he's trying to do it through me, fantastic. Then I'm a willing instrument. How about the one in verse 7? Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. You see, in that verse, courage comes when we choose to keep the commandments of God. There's something powerful about obedience because it, it allows us to trust in God's power out of God's justice, not just out of God's mercy. We know he'll be with us because we've done nothing to offend him, nothing to drive him away. It's like the end of Doctrine and Covenants 121, when your confidence waxes strong in the presence of God. Ooh, there's being strong and have a good courage. How'd you get there? Virtue, garnishing your thoughts unceasingly. Charity, filling your bowels. Oh, there's something about keeping God's commandments that makes you courageous, that makes you strong. And then the third one, verse 9, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. And here's why. Here's how it's possible. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. So not only does courage come when you know you are helping God fulfill his, his promises, not only does courage come when you know you are keeping the commandments of God, but ultimately, courage comes when you know that God is with you. If we can trust in that, he is with me whithersoever I go, then what's there to fear? I'm filled with faith. There's no room for lesser emotions. And to feel that, to know that, there's no Jordan River we can't cross. There's no Canaan we can't conquer. Now, in the midst of those three repetitions, he squeaks in one other verse. We saw six and seven and nine. Well, what about eight? Oh, so glad you asked. Amazing counsel along the same lines. The Lord says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Oh, such wonderful advice to anyone oh, with big missions ahead or big shoes to, to fill. Study the Word. Feast upon the words of Christ. They will tell you all things that you should do. This book of the law, the one that I inspired Moses with, the one that Moses commanded to be written and commanded to be read frequently to the people, well, Joshua, perhaps you need to read it most frequently of all because it's going to give you your marching orders, but it will also give you the reassurance you need to be strong and of a good courage. So what's he telling to do there? Meditate on it day and night. That's the internalization of God's word. And then don't let it depart out of thy mouth. In other words, talk about it all the time. There's the externalization of the word of God. You bring it in, you send it out, it's like breathing, 
and just allowing God's word to fill the soul and then through you fill the souls of those around you. There's, there's power there. There's something about studying it. There's the meditate. And then something about teaching it. We're learning and we're teaching. Uh, there's no better combination if you really want to, to know God's word. Uh, isn't that God's advice to Hiram back in DNC 11? Before you seek to declare the word, seek to obtain it. And so to meditate, to speak and teach. And if you'll do that, what's the promise? Oh, you, I'll make your way prosperous. You will have good success. My friends, I know I'm preaching to the choir since here we are studying scripture together. But I don't know a better way to feel good success. I don't know a better way to make your way prosper spiritually than feasting upon the words of Christ. I testify there is power in these pages. And I'm honored to be able to meditate therein day and night. And so honored that you've given me the privilege of making sure these words do not depart out of my mouth, but they're in them all the time. Well, by the time you get to this point, Joshua then tells the people, you got three days and it's go time. He talks to the three or the two and a half tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh, that had already kind of settled their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. Remember that? That exception to the rule, diversity. Uh, and reminds them, you promised to come over with us, right? That so this, is, this is unity first and then honoring the diversity that's necessary. Uh, you still in? And they're like, oh yeah, we're still in. Okay, good, because we're going we're gonna to cross. Then verse 16, as Joshua has given them their marching orders, they say, all that thou commandest us, we will do. And whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. Does that sound familiar, those phrases? We will do, we will go. So it's interesting because for the last while, 40 years or so, Moses has had to deal with a multitude of laymans and lemuels. Now, murmur, murmur, murmur all along the way. And yet here we finally see a nation of Nephites. We will go and do the things that the Lord hath commanded. We're ready for this, Joshua. So let's march forward. In verse 17, they say, According as we hearken unto Moses in all things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee, as he was with Moses. I love the end there. It's a repetition of what God himself had promised Joshua at the beginning of the chapter. I was with Moses, I'll be with you. And now the people are praying for the same thing. Oh, Joshua, as long as God is with you as he was with Moses, then what can stop us? Of course we'll follow. We will follow you just like we followed Moses. That's the part I get a little worried about. I picture Joshua going, uh, actually, could you do a little bit better following me than you did with Moses? Or at least better than your parents did. We got a new generation. You guys ready to rock? Okay, yeah, maybe you actually will follow. You will listen better than your parents listened to Moses. Then, verse 18, they say this to him. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandment, and will not hearken unto thy words in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Again, sounds serious, but as we saw through Deuteronomy, capital crimes leading to capital punishment. And they're serious. They're going to put their lives on the line in the conquest of Canaan. Here they're putting their lives on the line in terms of keeping the commandments. But then they say this, 
by way of echo of what we've seen already. Only be strong and of a good courage. Talk about the law of witnesses. That's the advice Moses gave me. It's the advice God has given me three times, and now it's the advice the people are giving me too. I love that the people are... We'll see Joshua encouraging the house of Israel throughout this book, but to see the house of Israel encouraging Joshua, you got this, Joshua, because God's got you. Trust in that. We trust in that, and we trust in you. So be strong. Be of a good courage. You know, to be honest, I don't sense from our living prophets and apostles any need of encouragement from us, even though they do ask for our prayers and ask for our faith. But there's something about being willing to follow them into into whatever lies ahead that does, I'm sure, give them courage and faith. There's, I'll put it this way, I'm grateful for prophets and apostles who are willing to say the hard things, those hard sayings, who can hear them, that we saw in John chapter 6. The ones that tend to scare away disciples whose discipleship might need to be a little more deep. These are things that, that no one seems to have the courage to say anymore. And yet, apostles and prophets must speak for God. And I do have a feeling that they, they are strengthened by our strength and encouraged by our courage when they know that we will stand with God and with them in the face of opposition. If we can say to them, go ahead and say it. Speak truth. Speak truth in love. We're grateful for that love, but we need that truth. We need prophets to speak like prophets, and they are. And I, I pray that we have the strength and the courage to match theirs. Now, as we turn a page from chapter 1 to chapter 2, it's one thing to have all of this oh, in kind of theory. Are we ready to do it, in fact? It's one thing to, to talk the talk. You ready to walk the walk? Because Jericho looms large in the distance. And that's what we see in chapter 2. In verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly. Now, it's funny, he'd only send two. He was part of the 12 spies that went into Israel a generation before. But remember, there were only two that were faithful, (laughs) Joshua and Caleb. So here, I wonder if he's like, yeah, we don't even, I'm not even going to give the 10 fearful ones an option. So I just want two faithful spies to go scope out the promised land. He said to them, go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now, we need to stop here and pause on this heroine, Rahab. Now, wait, a a heroine? That's a harlot? Yeah, that's what I said. Bear with me. We need to spend some time with her because Matthew did. At least she's one of the five women that Matthew mentions in his genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Remember the fifth was Mary? And the other four he lists were in hopes of preparing his Jewish readers not to misjudge Mother Mary, to help them see. I know this looks bad. Yes, she's expecting. She's pregnant before her, her wedding. But it is not what you see. It's not what it seems 
we got to look past that. And in hopes of getting you ready for that, let me remind you of four of the women in Jesus' own family line that were easy to misjudge as well. The one, the one we'll see today is Rahab. She's number two. The one we'll see in two weeks is Ruth. She's number three. A few weeks after that, we'll meet number four, who is Bathsheba. And number one, we already met back in Genesis 38. That was Tamar. Remember that story, Judah and Tamar? When Tamar's husband has died, and according to the law of leveret marriage, she's supposed to marry the, the next brother and the next brother, and if that doesn't work, then she's supposed to marry the father-in-law so that she can raise up seed to her deceased husband. Well, we studied that together, and it's a strange story, if you remember. Uh, there she is, dressed in such a way that when Judah walks by, she, he assumes she's a prostitute and harlot. Oh, there's a connection to Rahab here. But Tamar isn't. She's just trying to keep the covenant. She's trying to do her part. By the end of the story, as you recall, Judah himself admits she's been the righteous one. I've been the one that's done wrong. There's no guilt here. Well, I want, like, we, like we said, all of those four women's examples trying to help Matthew's audience don't misjudge Mary. Her son is the son of the living God. This is not some illegitimate child. Jesus isn't who you think. Mary isn't who you think. Bathsheba and Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, they're not who you think either. So as we now spend some time with Rahab, think of that. Who is she? Here, all I know so far, she's a prostitute. And her in her house, so this is a house of prostitution. This is a den of iniquity, a house of ill repute. And yet that's where the spies go to hide. Now, we're going to talk more about Rahab in a moment, but let me say something here about her house. Because to be honest, no better place for a, group of, for a couple of spies to go hide. You see, if you think of one of these houses of ill repute, typically they're going to be on the edge of society. We'll see later in this chapter that it's right on the wall of Jericho. You can't get further on the edge than that. And so if it's on the edge, this is a place that maybe it's easy to sneak into and sneak away from. This is not in the middle of town where there are eyes to see and, and tongues to wag. No, this is a good place to sneak in and sneak out without anyone asking questions. This is a place where strangers typically slip in, uh, hopefully unnoticed, and then slip out without anyone saying a word. This is, well, you know the old saying about Las Vegas, right? Sin City. Uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, that's the same thing that's going to happen in the house of Rahab. And... And no one's going to, to cast a dirty glance or wonder what people are up to. This is the ideal place for a couple of spies to go hide. Now, verse 2, because I'll add before we read it, it's more than an ideal place. It's the ideal person to hide them. You see that here. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. Oh, somehow he's caught wind. There's spies in town. The king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee. 
which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. Now, did he know that they'd come into Rahab? Did he just assume, like I just walked us through, that that's probably the best place for a spy to hide? Well, who, however he comes to know it, he singles out Rahab and asks for her assistance. Now, this puts her in a scary spot. Because if, if, he, if the king of Jericho finds out that she's been aiding and abetting the enemy, then she's going to be the first casualty of this war. In a way, this is Shifra and Pua, the two Hebrew midwives, having to face Pharaoh. This is Amram and, uh, excuse me, Yocheved, Amram's wife, and Miriam, this mother-daughter that are there to try to preserve Moses. All of those women we saw in Exodus chapter 1, the deliverers of the deliverer. And to see their willingness to put themselves in harm's way to save someone, that's what Rahab is willing to do as well. Because in verse 4, The woman took the two men and hid them. The next verse, it says it was on the roof among the stacks of flax. And said thus, Well, there came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. And away they went. So here's Rahab, willing to put her life in danger, to preserve people that she recognizes as, as more worthy than her own people are. This is interesting. Which side are you on? Oh, maybe that's why you live on the wall. Because you do have a choice to make. Now, like I said, one more thing about Rahab, because I want you to see her for who she is in the verses that follow. Uh, Jesus, the fact Jesus would come through her line. We saw this back with Rachel and Leah, that Leah was the lesser in Jacob's eyes, not beloved Rachel, the wife of his choice. And yet, whose line did Jesus come through? Leah's. There's something to me powerful about Jesus choosing the unchosen to be among his ancestry. To, to love the unloved. In Rahab's case, because, like I said, Tamar only dressed in such a way to appear to be a harlot. Rahab is one, or at least that's what it says, and harlot's house named Rahab. And, and yet, what is Jesus, the, the genealogy, what does it teach us? That though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow that I will choose you to be among my ancestors if you will simply choose me and decide to change. That's exactly what Rahab does. Because notice as the conversation continues, as these, the servants of the king are off on their wild goose chase, notice what Rahab says. She goes to the roof. She says to the spies in verse 9 and 10, I know Sounds like a testimony starting. I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, 
when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. Now this is more than just your reputation precedes you. This is, I'm coming to know your God as the God worth knowing. You see, when it says, I know the Lord hath given you, this is not some kind of generic term. It's the Lord with all capital letters, which is shorthand for Jehovah. It is the I am that I am. And she knows that now. I recognize Jehovah as the God of the earth. She'll say that specifically in just a moment. I recognize him as having given you This is his land to give, and he's giving it to you. Do you sense a desire on her part to have a relationship with the God of Israel? I said that I know his testimony language. Well, this sounds like conversion taking place. Notice verse 11. As soon as we heard these things, she says, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord, there's Jehovah, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. How's that for a testimony of the God of Israel? How's that for a statement of her conversion? He's the Lord your God. Can you sense in her this desire to be able to claim him as her own as well? He's the God of, in heaven above, and definitely here on earth below. So, what does she say in verse 12? Now therefore I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house, and give me a true token, that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brethren, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Now, first, I'm amazed that this is a harlot who is incredibly concerned about her own family. I think too often we picture prostitution, and we'll see more of this in a moment, as just this this living into this horrible lifestyle motivated purely by lust or by greed. And I don't see that in, in Rahab. I'll talk more about it in a moment, like I said, but keep this in mind. Who's she concerned about? This is not every man or woman for themselves. This is, I've saved you. Will you save more than just me? Will you save the people that matter to me? And will you swear by your God? See, I trust in your God. I'm going to trust that you trust in him too. And if he can stand in the middle of our relationship, if we're both trying to connect ourselves to God, then we can trust one another. I've put my life in your hands, and I'm about to do it again. I stood up to the king, I, to the king of Jericho to try to preserve your life. And if he finds out, my life will not be spared. I pray it will be spared when your people come to conquer. Will you give me a true token, something to remind me, something I can hold on to as evidence that you will be true to your word? Well, verse 14, the men answer her and say, Our life for yours, if ye utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. 
kindly and truly, by the way, were the two words that were used for with Abraham's servant when he went to go find Rebekah, to be kind and to be true. They're speaking the truth in love. There's that beautiful contrary. And that's what these men are promising her. Our life for yours. Uh, this reciprocal relationship. And then, verse 15, Then she let them down by a cord through the window. For her house was upon the town wall. She dwelt upon the wall. Like I said, this is as far as the outskirts of town will allow. Which makes Rahab a marginal figure. Again, Jesus chooses the unchosen. He loves the unloved. He brings in to the house of Israel those that live on the borders, that are on the margins. She occupies this liminal space, literally in her case, but metaphorically as well, because is she on the outside or the inside? Good question. Is she an Israelite or a, a citizen of Jericho? Ah, good question too. Is she clean or unclean? A harlot, but recognizing the God of Israel. Ah, You see what happens when you live on the wall? We all do in a way with choices to make that will lean us in one direction or the other. I'm grateful that, that Rahab leaned in the direction of Jehovah, that she leaned toward Israel, away from Jericho. It saved her life. That was a, a wise choice to make. And so here we are on our wall with similar decisions. Well, verse 18, the spies tell her, Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all thy father's household home unto thee. Now, she had asked for a token, right? Give me a true token. And they take that and turn it truly into something literal. Okay, you're going to save us. And we're offering this your life for our life. You're going to let us out of the window on the wall by this scarlet cord. Well, keep it there. Bind it there. And that is something we will look to as our reminder of promises made, promises that will be kept. We'll recognize the, the window on the wall. And that's the place that saved us. Therefore, that's the place that's worth saving. The exact thing you used to deliver us will end up coming around to deliver you. Now, how's that for a true token? They say in verse 19, It shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head. So all bets off for those ones. We will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head if any hand be upon him. Now, this is where the true token takes on even greater symbolism. You see, as long as they're in the house, the house that is marked by this true token, then our destroying armies will pass by and do them no harm. Is this sounding familiar? Something scarlet to mark the home 
of those who are living faithfully within. I don't even care that this, at one point, it is no longer, at one point this was a house of ill repute. It doesn't matter what happened there in the past. As you change, as you lean in the right direction on this wall, as you come to know the God of Israel and decide to make covenants with him, as you bring God's servants into the shelter of your roof and put your life in their hands, oh, there's conversion, there's change, and mark that home with the blood of the Lamb, if this is Passover. Mark this home by a scarlet cord, if this is Jericho. That This is the, a repetition of that earlier symbol. And like I said, just as the destroying angel will pass over the home with the red blood of the Lamb, so the destroying armies of Israel will pass over the home of righteous Rahab. She's changed. In verse 24, the spies then return to Joshua and say, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land. Even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. Oh, they take Rahab for her word. And, and now they know what life is like on the inside, the concerns that are among them, to be able to come home. Now how's this for some real encouragement? Be strong and have a good courage. Oh, God will be with us. Even the people on that side of the wall are coming to know that. So chapter 3, verse 1, Joshua rose early in the morning. There's no hesitation, no fear on his part. It's amazing how often in the book of Joshua, it'll say that he got up early. Okay? They removed from Shittim. They came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. They're ready to go. They got this glowing report from the spies. And unlike the previous generation, uh, who said, okay, yeah, the land looks good, the grapes are big, but the giants are bigger. Uh, we can't do this. No, there was just the two righteous this time. This is like Joshua Jr. <laughs> and Caleb 2.0. And they come back with that glowing report and, okay, let's do this thing. I'm, I had 40 years of waiting in me. I don't think I've got another 40. And so Joshua gets up as quick as he can and gets the people too. In verse 5, he says to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Years ago, in a priesthood session of conference, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland spoke of the need of adding to the authority of the priesthood the true power of the priesthood that can only come through personal worthiness. And he quoted that verse in such a way that I, as a, as a younger listener, was just... I was called to spiritual attention. I wanted to see God's hand in my life, working wonders. And so what was the counsel? To sanctify myself. I mean, this is, jo this is Jacob when he's bringing the people back to the promised land, and they're, they're coming close to Bethel, the house of God, site of Jacob's ladder, the, ver the vertical, straight and narrow. And what's he asking them to do? Wash yourself. Get rid of any false gods you've picked up along the way. And a similar thing is happening here. We're about to go in. 
who are about to cross the, the river, sanctify yourself and then prepare yourself to see the salvation of God. He will do wonders among us. In verse 7, the Lord says to Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. It's the third time we've seen it. First time God said, reassured Joshua, I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. Second time, the people saying to Joshua, I just pray that God will be with you the way he was with Moses. And here, third time, the Lord saying, you ready to, for me to prove to the people that I'm with you in the same way I was with Moses? Again, here we're going to begin seeing these echoed experiences, things that happened in Moses' ministry that will be repeated here with Joshua. Verse 10, Joshua says to the people, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Amorites, Jebusites, you name the ites, they're gone. And the only ites that will be left will be Israelites, because God is with us. I love how he's described there. The living God is among you, and hereby ye shall know it. It's not just that he's with me, he's with you. And it's not some dead deity. This is not a a past promise. This is a living God. And for you to know that he is alive and well among us, that he is present in our lives and willing to carry us into a glorious future, keep your eyes open for this and see what he's about to do. Verse 11, behold the Ark of the Covenant. We could have stopped there. But notice the full title, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. See, it's not about the Ark. We're going to see that problem in the books of Samuel when they think, oh, it's the Ark that does it. No, it's the Lord that does it. So great full full term, Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. God is going to lead the way here. Verse 12 Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man. I'll tell you what to do with those twelve men in just a minute. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, then the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above. They shall stand upon and heap. Like I said, this is how you're about to know that the living God is among you. This is why we need to sanctify ourselves, because tomorrow we're going to see wonders. And the first wonder we will witness is a parting of the waters, just like our fathers and mothers crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground. You see these echoing experiences starting to roll forth? You will see the hand of God in your life in similar ways to the ways our forefathers saw it in theirs. So sanctify yourselves and get ready for this. It's going to happen, he said, as soon as the priest's feet get wet. As soon as that happens. It's interesting here because remember when we studied the the plagues of Egypt and, and thought about the possibility of Pharaoh just explaining them all away on naturalistic cause and consequence, cause and effect. Oh, river, Nile to blood? Are you kidding? No, there was probably some red algae bloom. How's that? Uh, There was some, I don't know, natural pollution, and it caused the river to look red. And so, of course, where are the frogs going to go? They're going to hop their way out to safety. 
but staying out of the river long enough, of course the frogs are going to die, and that's going to breed lice and flies and some kind of pestilence that'll probably spread disease to the flocks and herds and cattle and so on. And this is all, this can all be naturally explained. Oh, really? I picture Moses pushing back against that going, um, how about like timing? Remember when he starts to do that? When would you like this plague to end? I'll let you set the date or, the t- or fix the time. Or how about the selectivity of these so-called natural consequences only affecting the Egyptians, not the Israelites, huh? Oh, there may be some natural consequence. I have no problem with the frogs hopping out and dying. But do not assign them solely to natural consequences, or natural causes. God does work through natural phenomena. But it is God behind them at work. I think the same could be said here. Because if the Jordan River is going to stop and clear the way so that Israel can cross the river on dry ground, well, the, the ones that are seeking to explain it and explain it away would simply say, oh, come on, it's the Jordan River, which is the lowest body uh, or the lowest river elevation-wise on planet Earth. Most of it is below sea level, at least when it enters the Dead Sea. And why so low? Because this is the bottom of the Jordan Rift Valley, there's some, some seismic activity there, which is why it's so deep below sea level, in fact. Ah, okay. And if it's seismic activity, then of course, that's all it takes. There was probably some earthquake, some tremor far upstream, and though the rubble fell, a landslide down, and it naturally dammed the river. Okay. Of course, that's going to stop it. In fact, fast forward to the Battle of Jericho with the walls come a-tumbling down. Oh, yeah, just more seismic activity. One more earthquake. Had nothing to do with ram's horns and, and circling uh, priests. No. Let's just chalk it all up to natural, natural consequence. Well, how about the timing once again? As soon as the soles of the feet of the priests rest in the waters of Jordan. And then it begins to make and heap wall of water upstream, just like there were walls of water on either side of the Red Sea. Oh, look for God's hand. You'll see it. Even behind seemingly natural cause and effect. He then says this in verse 15, As they that bear the ark were come into Jordan, And the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water. That the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon an heap, and the people passed over right against Jericho. Now we discussed this as a possibility in that prior generation's miracle of the Red Sea. Jewish tradition, we don't have evidence in Exodus, but Jewish tradition was that that one leader from the tribe of Judah said, well, what are we waiting for? Moses said, move forward, and he has the faith that the water will part, so so do I. And so he starts wading in through the surf, and it gets to his ankles and his knees and his waist and his chest and his neck and his nostrils before it finally opens the way. Now, again, that's a beautiful tradition. Uh, I don't know if it, if it actually happened, but here, now we have the actual history where the principle is taught. 
the same principle. The principle that faith precedes the miracle. The, faith, the principle that we receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. The principle that if you want the river to part, you're probably going to need to get your feet wet first. Dip your feet in the brim of whatever challenge lies ahead of you. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Fine, I will, but start inching forward. And don't wait for me to part the water. Initiate the miracle yourself by starting to wade into the water before it starts to pile up. There's something powerful about that principle. And if we have the faith to put our toe in, if we'll just begin to believe and begin to inch our way toward God's promises, then prepare to see wonders worked among us. In verse 17, the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm. That's a great verb, too. Uh, if you want the miracle to hold, then you better stand firm in it. Don't let the faith waver. They stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Oh, just like your parents. They had a miracle to claim as their own. Now you do too. Oh, but mine's just a little river. Theirs was the whole, this was, theirs was an entire Red Sea. Is it any less dramatic? A, a river that is dammed by deity. Oh, someone holding that wall of water, keeping it from rushing forth so that you have a, a path to cross, a way to enter. And best of all, you now have a personal experience to rely upon, not just past experiences from your parents. For, in fact, in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 18, it says, It came to pass when the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord were come up out of the midst of Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up unto the dry land, that the waters of Jordan returned unto their place and flowed over all his banks, as they did before. This miracle lasted just as long as it was needed. Some mantles fit just for the length of a calling. But what I love about this is this, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is right there, keeping back the currents of culture, holding back the waters of the world. And, and he stands there, holding them back, preparing the way, preserving us. And he will be there for the duration the, the, the priests were the first ones in and the last ones out. Do you have people like that in your ward? <laughs> first to show up and the last to leave, setting up the activity and still there to take it all down. Well, nobody stays longer than the Lord. And for him to be the first, again, just put it this way. As Israel, one by one, the entire house of Israel crossing this Jordan River on dry ground, Every one of them was passing the presence of God. 
they all had that privilege. And to, to see the Ark of the Covenant, just right as they walked past it, to see the water piling up on the other side. God goes before us. God is our rearward, on our right hand and our left, with angels round about us to bear us up. They're seeing the hand of God in their deliverance. Well, it sounds like a miracle worth memorializing, worth remembering. You better believe it. So, chapter 4, verse 14. On that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. Here is this passing of the mantle. I, I promised I'd be with you, as with him, uh, your predecessor. I promised that I would begin to magnify you in their sight, and now I have. They now know, wow, God is with Joshua, just like he was with Moses. Joshua can do the kinds of things Moses did. Better yet, God can do it through it all. I'm grateful that as a 19-year-old, missing my prophet, Ezra Taft Benson, I'm so grateful that God allowed me to see his hand magnifying Howard W. Hunter. Because I had a logical testimony that President Hunter was the president of the church, at least. I mean, he had outlived everybody else. But I didn't know much about him, and he certainly wasn't my Ezra Taft Benson. And yet, when I was in the MTC, and President Hunter came, I wasn't expecting anything. I just had this mental acquiescence that that's the way it works with succession in the presidency, and he was the senior apostle, so of course he's the president of the church. But when he walked into the room... I was blown away by an unexpected spirit. As the Lord magnified Howard W. Hunter in the sight of this, of this particular part of Israel, and I imagine in all of Israel that was there assembled, I'm grateful for the next nine months of his brief but beautiful ministry. I could testify to every Puerto Rican I met. I know spiritually not just logically, that there is a prophet upon the earth. He has been magnified in my sight. And I pray that we can say that anytime a new prophet begins to assume the mantle and is magnified. Well, like I said, this was a miracle worth memorializing. Well, let's see how that happens. Remember the 12 men we mentioned back in the last chapter? Well, Chapter 4, verse 4, Joshua called them. He called the twelve men, whom he had prepared of the children of Israel, out of every tribe a man. Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 9, what are you going to do with those stones? Joshua set them up. He set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, which bear the Ark of the Covenant, stood. They are there unto this day. This wasn't just meant to be some kind of souvenir for yourselves, you twelve men. No, this is going to be a memorial for the house of Israel, to remember the blessings of God. This is shelf number one, okay? Revelation passed. Reminders of God's hand in our lives. And to be able to set up this this pillar, like Jacob always did, an altar of sorts, like Abraham always did, to have this stack of stones as a reminder. 
God worked wonders that day. In verse 6, this may be a sign unto you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. I love how often the Lord banks on the curiosity of our children. We saw that back in Passover, right? When the kids are wondering at some point, uh, why do we eat all this weird stuff on Passover? Ah, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you a story of God's deliverance. Well, imagine uh, taking the kids on a road trip and passing down by Jordan over near Jericho, and they see this interesting stack of stones. What's that, Dad? What's that, Mom? Ah, so glad you asked. That's part of the power of Shelf One. And to have all of those souvenirs, those reminders of redemption, it gives our children a chance to ask us, Hey, Grandma, what's that thing? Grandpa, tell me a story. Ah, oh, so glad you asked. Let me tell you about the hand of God in my life in hopes that it will peak in you more than just curiosity, but a desire to see God's hand in your life as well. In verse 22 of Joshua 4, Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the land of Jordan from before you until ye were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we were gone over. In some ways, that sounds like Joshua and Caleb and their generation speaking to their successors. God did incredible things for us. He's now done incredible things for you. We had our Red Sea. You have your Jordan River. There's something powerful about passing on those kinds of legacies. There was a talk given, what, 1939 by J. Reuben Clark, the charted course of the church in education. It's a, it's a, a foundational talk for every religious ed educator. We read it every year. But in that talk, President Clark said that of the youth, that they crave to have the spiritual experiences that their parents have had. These are mature youth. They are, they've, been, they've lived with a legacy behind them. You don't have to come sneak up behind them and whisper religion into their ears. They're ready for more than that. But I, love, I just love that mental image that he gives us of these incredible youth growing up ready wanting the faith that their, their fathers and mothers have, wanting to have their own spiritual experiences, wanting to be able to say, I know for myself, not just, I know my parents have testimonies. And to be able to see that here, we had our Red Sea, you have your Jordan River. So powerful. He ends in verse 24, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Yes, generation after generation, people after people, all the people of the earth can know these things for themselves. 
Well, the miracle has been memorialized. It's also time for the covenant to be renewed. And that's in chapter 5. You see, word begins to spread that Israel not just didn't, they didn't just conquer, get out of Egypt. They didn't just cross the Red Sea. They didn't just conquer kingdom after kingdom along the way. But now there's another miracle. The, the Jordan River stopped flowing so they could cross and come into our territory. Well, now everyone's afraid. In verse 1 of chapter 5, the people's hearts melted. Neither was their spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. Now, Joshua is going to be careful to make sure that this doesn't go to the Israelites' heads. Okay, uh, There needs to be still some sense of underdog mentality so that we trust in God. It's not us. It's Him. We didn't stop the water. God did. So how are we going to do this? Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Now, don't worry. No one who's already been circumcised is going to be recircumcised here. That's not what he's saying. The problem is people hadn't been circumcised the first time. This tells us some other thing that's gone wrong with that prior generation. Notice verse 5. Now all the people that came out of Egypt, that is, were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. Ah, now do you sense the problem? People who took the covenant upon themselves hadn't passed on the token of that covenant to their children. Do you remember DNC 6825? Inasmuch as there are parents in Zion that do not teach their children to understand faith and repentance and baptism in the Holy Ghost, by the time they are eight years old, in other words, by the time they are ready to take the covenant upon themselves, if parents haven't done that, if they haven't passed it on, then the sin be on the heads of the parents. You get a sense that that's what's happened here. Or how about King Benjamin's people? Those that had this life-changing experience hearing King Benjamin's words, but had children that were too young to understand them? Well, it was nobody's fault. But by the time they were old enough, they still didn't believe in the words that had been said. Oh, there's a problem. Something happened from one generation to the next that the baton was not passed in this relay race. And no wonder that generation was a wander, wander, die one. This one, are you ready to take the covenant upon yourself? Well, it's interesting that... Well, I'll put it this way. You've now had your own crossing the water miracle. Are you now also ready to take upon yourself the token of the covenant? It's not enough to rely upon mom and dad's miracles, nor on mom and dad's covenants. Get your own miracles, get your own testimony, build your own faith, and make your own promises with God. And that's exactly what these people will do. They are all circumcised all the men of Israel that day, which actually says two other interesting things symbolically. Number one, we are now in the promised land and we're about to conquer Canaan. It will involve the shedding of the blood of those who have not kept covenant with conscience. We're about to see the conquest of Canaan and it's bloody and it's brutal. It's violent and it's hard to 
to stomach at times the, the kind of complete annihilation of these cities with men and women and children. And this is, this is a hard one. The conquest of Canaan, I've tried to be drop, drop hints throughout this, the books of Moses. In Deuteronomy, for example, that these were capital crimes that required capital punishment. And that that's what the people in, the, in Canaan were guilty of. Yeah, we saw in 1 Nephi 17, uh, Nephi's explanation to Laman and Lemuel, they could have stayed if they'd been righteous. We see that in Rahab and her family. Choose the God of Israel and stay in Israel. We saw that way back in Genesis 15. The, the, Amorite, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So there's no need to drive them out. There is a holiness to the holy land. There is a promise to the promised land. And there are promises that must be keep, kept by the people who stay there. Or the land itself will vomit them out. Israel itself will suffer those consequences through the scattering that we'll see later. When they descended to the level of living of the Canaanites that they were supposed to drive out. You can't, you can't mingle with this level of wickedness because it will bring you down to that lowest common denominator. That's all that's happening or soon to happen. But what's interesting here, before any Canaanite blood is shed, Israelite blood is shed first. And that's in the, the taking upon themselves of the covenant of circumcision. How serious were they about the Abrahamic covenant, because that's when circumcision began. A covenant that is inherently tied to the promise of posterity, to seed. And so circumcision on the part of these Israelite, the, the army of Israel chose to shed their own blood first as token of the covenant that we will keep the covenant. And the only blood we will shed going forward is because of the wickedness of those that would make, that would neither make nor keep any covenants themselves. The other side of that, the second part of this symbolism, is what they've just done. They just crossed the river. The river is now flowing again behind them, which has cut off any easy way of retreat. We're in the promised land. We're, we intend to stay. But now enemy territory stretches off as far as the eye can see. So now that we've finally entered enemy, we're, we've crossed enemy lines, we've cut off our own path of retreat. What's the first thing we're going to do? We're going to completely incapacitate our own army. Uh, not very wise uh, military tactics. Then again, an incredible leap of faith. God, we trust that the victory will lie in you, not in the arm of flesh. I mean, do you remember back in, in Genesis where Simeon and Levi use circumcision as a, as a ruse, as, a, as a, a trap, where they convince the men of Shechem to all be circumcised? Why? So you can join our families and keep our covenants? No, so that you'll be incapacitated so that we can come in while you're still sore and cannot fight and we'll slaughter all of you. There's an interesting reversal here. 
They're not incapacitating the enemy. They're incapacitating themselves. Well, now that we're here in harm's way, God, we completely trust you. And we will rely upon your strength to get us through these battles. Well, we'll see this strength. <laughs> it's more than enough. Well, verse 9 of Joshua 5. The Lord says to Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. Gilgal means a rolling away, or a wheel, or a circle of stones. Another great metaphor here. Rolling away the reproach of Egypt. What is that reproach? Well, like what we've said before, it was easy to get Israel out of Egypt compared to getting Egypt out of Israel. But here, I think it's finally behind us. Uh, you've made a covenant for yourselves. And, oh, that prior generation, we can completely leave it in our past. We can roll it away because we're serious about keeping the commandments of God. In verse 10 then, the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. Now again, this might be pointing towards that scarlet cord that's going to be hanging from Rahab's window. They, they remind themselves of their own blood of the lamb on their lintel and doorposts before they go see a similar token in the window on the wall. But there's also something here about what else that's been happening. Well, this is a chapter about the renewal of covenant, right? They've had their miracle. They've passed through the water. They've taken the covenant upon themselves with the, the mark of circumcision. And now let us commemorate all of that with the Passover, which will remind us of what real deliverance was all about. Gilgal, the reproach of Egypt is behind us. The firstborn died. The slaves have been set free. And now we're ready to enter our promised land. It's actually amazing to see all of this come together. Miraculously passing through the water. That's the Jordan River. Memorializing the event so everyone can remember. There's the stones at Gilgal. Renewing the covenant personally. There's circumcision. And then reenacting their deliverance from Egypt. That's the Passover. Now think about that in terms of baptism and sacrament. Baptism is us crossing our Jordan River. Baptism is our crossing the Rubicon. It's deciding to leave Egypt behind and come into a land of promise. It is a, a miraculous cleansing, a washing. But then on the other side, what do we do to remind ourselves of that? The sacrament is meant to help us remember, to renew, to reenact. The sacrament is our stones at Gilgal. It's our circumcision. It's our Passover. It's reminding us of all of these promises we've made. Then another two interesting things happen. Right before they, they've crossed the river, the next thing up is the Battle of Jericho. But these two things happen uh, in the meantime. Verse 11, They did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. Unleavened cakes, parched corn in the selfsame day, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Just as the river paused 
just as long as was needed. Well, the manna continued just as long as was necessary also, and no longer. This was a miracle to match the people's need. But after going through wilderness wanderings and me providing food from heaven every day, you're now about to enter the, well, you're here now. You're in the land of promise. It's flowing with milk and honey. Are you ready to be weaned off what I've been giving you? These morsels of manna every day? Are you ready to begin providing for yourself? There is something about growing up in God in terms of that. And instead of being spoon-fed our spirituality by others, are we ready to live into it more independently ourselves? Verse 13 then, It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? I'm impressed that Joshua doesn't make an assumption one way or another. I mean, he's open, but he allows the other person to introduce himself. I think too often we just assume someone is probably against us that may not be. And so not jumping to conclusions, letting people explain themselves, it's a fine line. We don't want to be gullible on the one hand, but we don't want to be cynical on the other. So let people speak for themselves. He does that for this man, who then says to him in 14, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. Oh, good thing Joshua didn't assume the worst. Joshua then fell on his face to the earth and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? This is General Joshua with his face in the dirt. This is him recognizing who the real leader is. And wow, the army of Israel is here to strengthen the army of Israel. Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Echoed experiences? Yeah, we keep seeing them. From Red Sea to Jordan River, from circumcision to circumcision, now from barefoot Moses before the burning, burning bush to barefoot Joshua before the captain of the Lord's host. Holy ground back on Sinai. Oh, well, here's holy ground in the Holy Land. Chapter 6 then begins the Battle of Jericho. Oh, wonderful spirituals. You can sing them with the slaves who also longed for a day to cross into Canaan, to come out of their own bondage, imposed by taskmasters no more merciful than those of Pharaoh. And to think of them singing of Jericho and crossing the Jordan. Oh, those old slave spirituals. There was doctrine being taught there. There was hope being held out there. And for all of us that feel like we're in bondage on occasion to our own natural man or woman, to be freed, these battles of Jericho that lie ahead, we will see the miracle hand, the miraculous hands of God. We'll see these wonders being worked before us. And chapter 6 of Joshua is a beautiful place to see it. In verse 1, Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. Now, I want to study chapter 6 on two levels. 
One is the literal and historical, and the other is the metaphorical and spiritual. Because, yes, there's a literal city in front of them with large walls. Remember, that was the concern that the prior generation of spies raised, right? Here, what are we going to do about these walls? How do we bring them down so that we can conquer this city? We'll see that in this chapter. But metaphorically, what do we do when someone seems closed off to us? when we're trying to share with them our testimony or our faith or our love and the walls come up and there doesn't seem to be any loose bricks for us to work our way through. If you've had a difficult time sharing the gospel, if you've had a difficult time bringing up how you feel about the truths of God because of the walls of those around you, if none go out and none come in, well, I think there's some great principles in the Battle of Jericho that might help us see how walls can come a-tumbling down. Now, in this chapter, the Lord reassures Joshua that I've already given Jericho into your hands. And then he begins to explain the strategy. Verse 3, Ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. Now, from the literal side of things, can you imagine what's going on in the minds and hearts of the people of Jericho? where for six days straight, this army that you've already heard is working wonders. This army that's gotten out of Egypt, the world's superpower, has beaten every Canaanite king along the way, uh, and we're next. And all they're doing is marching around in absolute silence. Six days, day after day, this happens. Can you picture the anticipation ratcheting up each day? The fear increasing, this dread, because nothing's happening, but we know something's about to. When's it going to come down? Now, on the more metaphorical and spiritual side, is there wisdom sometimes not in rushing in with guns blazing, with gospel guns blazing? Is there wisdom in starting slow and just kind of wandering around town, so to speak, Letting people see you and come to know you and realize that you're a good person. Do the walls start to come down a little that way? Well, let's get back to the literal. Verse 4, seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. There's lots of sevens there. Now... Seven, as we saw in creation, is a great symbolic number for completeness, wholeness, totality. It's done. It is very good. Well, we are going to completely surround this city. We're going to completely destroy it. We're going to completely conquer Canaan. This has to be a a seven, all-in kind of battle plan. Or, metaphorically, as we share the gospel... Can we completely, totally surround people with the presence of God, with our faith in Him, with our love for them? Can they feel... That's what I love about priesthood blessings, for example, or confirmations, when the priesthood is literally... where holders of the priesthood are literally surrounding this person. Picture a baby blessing. And there's just... There's no breaks in the, there's no break in the ranks. 
And to be completely surrounded and borne up, I think there's something beautiful here that, again, will help the walls come down. In verse 5, more of the strategy. It shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. You see, it's one thing if it's the priests, but it's another thing when it's the people. When the priests are going around, or blowing their trumpets, sounding the alarm, but what, what finally brings the victory is when the people join in the shout. When they add their witness to what prophets and apostles have said before. To ratify, to, to verify, to say, I'm all in with you on this. And when that happens, oh, there's no barrier that we cannot cross. There's no kingdom we cannot conquer. This is the people giving one voice to the one heart and one mind that Zion has made of them. And when that happens, oh, it's millennial kingdom time. When that happens, we are ready for the coming of Christ. We're ready for the conquest of Canaan. Bring on the promised land. They march about the city in silence once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they march around again in this eerie silence until on the seventh time, as the priests are blowing their ram horn trumpets. Verse 16, it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. Did you notice the past tense of the verb? He's already given it to you. And not a sword has been unsheathed yet, but it's yours. So what's there not to shout about? Raise your voice in praise, in prayer, in gratitude, in glory. We'll sing and we'll shout with the armies of heaven. Hosanna, Hosanna to God and the Lamb. Hosanna, oh God, save us. Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. It's happening. And for us to sing and shout with those armies, oh, how can the walls not come a-tumbling down? In verse 20, So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they took the city again what is it that persuades people to lower their defenses and to let the influence of God into their lives have they seen us around them have they felt surrounded by God's power his presence does he sent do they sense the the spiritual strength of the army of israel not out of fear but out of a desire to be numbered among them we want rahabs here we want everyone to decide to mark their homes with that scarlet cord 
uh, from which God will lower the blessings of heaven. In verse 22, Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the city, Go into the harlot's house, bring out thence the woman, all that she hath, as ye swear unto her. Think about that. Who are we bringing out of the wicked world? Who are we saving from sin? And are we coaxing them out of Canaan, hoping that they will come and join us where safety is available, where peace reigns? In verse 23, the young men that were spies went in. They brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brother and all that she had. They brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. That's our first hope, is to save, not to destroy. Destroying angels are always ministering angels first. And ministering to Rahab and to her entire household. Again, I mentioned this early when we first met Rahab. And the irony of a prostitute who cares so much about family. Now, that again should give us pause to try to consider the possible motives of Rahab's prostitution. Too often we associate prostitution solely with lust and greed, but that's too often on the perpetrator's part with the prostitute so often as a victim. At least that's often the case. They say that they sometimes call prostitution the world's oldest profession. But why so old? Because, sadly, when a woman is reduced to absolute nothingness, with no hope of being able to be provided for, and no way to provide for herself, I don't think we really understand just how hard it would be to be a single woman in the ancient world. We'll see this with Ruth and Naomi in a few weeks. But to understand what they're up against without anyone to care for them. And so what are you left with? This is Fantine in Les Miserables. She was not motivated by lust. She was reduced to that level because she had no one to care for her. Well, that's what makes Rahab so interesting because she seems to have everyone there as possible providers and protectors. You have a mother and a father and brothers and sisters and a whole household that you care about. But it makes me wonder, did they not care for her? There's no mention of husband. And when your husband dies and you're thrown back upon the mercy of your family, had they not provided for her? I recognize this is all speculative. We don't know enough about Rahab's situation. But trying to make sense of her circumstance and what prostitution in the ancient world was often motivated by women driven to that, largely through no fault of their own, and, and to see the kind of person she was in recognizing the God of Israel for who he was and the servants of Israel for who they were and caring for a family that may not have cared enough for her. Oh, no wonder Jesus would choose her for his ancestry. I don't care what your profession used to be. 
the only profession I care about is what you are professing to believe. And you believe in me. You believe in caring for people that may not care for you. There's something powerful there. She and her family are preserved. In verse 24, the army of Israel burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. This is a massive burnt offering given to God here at the dawn of the conquest of Canaan. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Those things were worth preserving, but not for personal enrichment. No, that's for the treasury of God. This is like plundering the riches of Egypt all over again. Now we're plundering the riches of Canaan, but not for self-aggrandizement. No, this is like the riches of Egypt, meant for tabernacle furnishings. This is meant for the house of God. And in verse 25, Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive, and her father's household and all that she had, and she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Oh, that verse must have been written sometime after the fact, but people looking back, retrospective, ah, she's still here, still lives among us. It's a bummer that they kept calling her Rahab the harlot. Oh, she's past that, folks. Can we get past it ourselves? How should we remember her? Oh, the deliverer of the spies of Israel. That's, that's something holding on, worth holding on to. Verse 26, Then Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereon in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. Those last phrases are difficult. The other translations say, At the cost of his firstborn son he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest he will set up its gates. In other words, do not rebuild this city. Some things are meant to be torn down and never reconstructed. Some parts of our past are meant to be forever left behind. And so this city of Jericho, let it be a, a memorial. We saw a pile of stones by the Jordan River. How about a pile of rubble further, further up? to remind us of just how, how the wicked world looks when it is finally toppled. I hope that serves as motivation for us to build the city of God, not the city of man. So, verse 27, The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Oh, not his fame, the Lord's fame. Are we making sure that all eyes look up to him, not over to us? Chapter 7 then proceeds, and it's a fascinating story. Uh, it's right in the aftermath of the battle of Jericho. And the next battle is supposed to be the battle of Ai. And Ai means ruin. I mean, we just ruined Jericho. Ai already seems ruined already. Okay? Do you remember... Back in Abraham's day where he sets up this altar with Bethel on one side and I on the other. And we talked about that as his valley of decision, a choice to make. Bethel means house of God. I means ruin. So here I am I making a choice. Will I ascend towards the house of God or will I just fall into a ruined world and go its way? 
Well, the battle of Ai was supposed to be easy. It's already ruined. But Israel loses the battle of Ai. And it kind of ruined them. At least it ruined their confidence. How did this happen? The amazing chapter to watch it unfold. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now, in the prior chapter, Joshua had warned the people, when you go into Jericho, don't touch a thing, do not take a thing. Yes, all their gold and silver and so on will be consecrated to God, but this is a collective consecration. This is not individual enrichment. So do not take any of the accursed things or it will end up cursing you. And unfortunately, as we see at the beginning of this chapter, somebody disregarded that, that command. And his name was Achan. And notice how it's described there. The children of Israel committed a trespass. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Hmm. Only one was guilty, but all were affected. And we need to understand that about sin. Now, how were they affected? This is where the battle of Ai comes in. That was the next city on the list. And so Joshua sends men to scope it out. And they come back and they're like, this one is going to be a piece of cake compared to, to Jericho. In fact, verse 3, they say, let not all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up and smite I, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. See, here's the problem. Israel assumed it was going to be an easy victory. Did they assume that Jericho was easy because they were so mighty? Had they forgotten that it was only the power of God that did that? So now with the, the battle of I, it's, <laughs> we don't even need uh, our entire arm of flesh. Uh, we had so much flesh on that arm. We were so mighty in the battle of Jericho that this was going to be a cakewalk compared to that. So we can let some of that flesh rest. Uh, send two or three thousand and, and that's all that we'll need. Our, do we rely on our own strength and sometimes not even rely on much of that thinking that we got this? Well, verse four. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them, about thirty and six men. For they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, wait a minute. I thought it was the enemy's hearts that were supposed to melt like water. That's what happened in Jericho. So what's happening throughout Canaan, right? As they hear these stories of the mighty power of the army of Israel. Well, it wasn't, they weren't scared of the army. They were scared of the God of Israel. And he didn't come for this one because you didn't invite him. You didn't think you needed him. You remember I've said this before, that when we think we can do things on our own, God usually lets us try. And when we crash and burn, he's there to pick up the pieces if we'll just turn back to him and ask for his help. I'm sorry, I relied on the arm of flesh when it was the arm of God that was the one providing the power all along. Well, these Israelites lost their confidence immediately. 
Don't underestimate the power of the enemy and don't overestimate your own personal strength. Keep it all in divine perspective and understand that God is behind all of this, that we owe all of our victories to Him. Like I said, do it, think you can do it on your own and you will. There's a great story in the New Testament where the apostles, remember when the apostles let Jesus sleep on the boat? And then the storm picks up on the Sea of Galilee and everyone's freaking out. All these fishermen who'd spent their lives on, in, on boats and in the water and now they're afraid they're about to die. And so they run over to Jesus and they wake him. And they remember the words? So classic. Carest thou not that we perish? Do you not even care? And I picture, if it were me, <laughs> woken up and, and had that thrown in my face. Do you not even care that we're perishing out here? If it were me, I would say, uh, carest thou not that I sleepeth? Because honestly, the answer is No. You didn't care that I was sleeping. You let me fall asleep. And why did you think you were safe with a sleeping Savior aboard? You didn't think you needed me. And what lulled you into that false sense of security? Uh, probably the fact that you fishermen were out here within your comfort zone. You grew up on the Sea of Galilee. This was home territory for you. And as a result... You were content to let me sleep. Didn't think you needed me. And then once you realized you did, boy, did you overcorrect. And you thought I was the one that wasn't caring about anything. No. There's something about comfort zones. There's something about, oh, past successes that, like I said, lulls us into this false sense that we got this. So go ahead and sleep this time, Jesus. We'll wake you on the other side, but we can handle this on our own. Don't worry about coming for this battle. Thanks for your help in Jericho. We probably needed a little of that, but we won't need much for I. I don't think we'll need any. We don't even need all of our own help, our own strength. So go ahead and sleep back in stern. No, we cannot allow, we can't afford to let the Lord sleep. We need to keep him awake. Better yet, we need to be awake ourselves, awake to our constant need for him. I have been guilty of letting Jesus sleep on my seas of Galilee. I've been guilty of thinking, I got this. I'm a teacher. This is what I do. And so if you need to help somebody else, uh, I can probably do this lesson on my own. And then I do teach the lesson on my own. Then I crash and burn like Israel before I, I pray that I will never sleep on God or let him think that I believe he can, that I can survive him sleeping on me. No, I need to be awake to my constant need for the constant care that God gives us. And that's what the people of Israel need to learn from the battle of I. Well, they start to learn it. In fact, Joshua himself learns it too. Verse 6, Joshua rent his clothes. He fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord unto the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. This is the ultimate sign of mourning. Torn clothes, sackcloth and ashes kind of a moment. This is mourning. This is repentance. It does make you wonder, though, 
is it repentance? Uh, or is it just fear? Uh, is this godly sorrow because they've made some mistakes? Or is this just worldly sorrow that we're, we lost? And do we have any hope of winning in the future? See, verse 7, the way Joshua responds, he says, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan. Now, Joshua said that? Mr. Faith over fear from 40 years ago? Joshua said this, who took his shoes off before the captain of the Lord's hosts? Joshua, what happened here? This sounds like Israel from the wilderness wanderings. This sounds like those who murmured every time they didn't have a morsel of food to eat or any water to drink. Sounds like the people that were pining over the past with Egyptian cucumbers and leeks and onions. And why did you bring us out into the wilderness to kill us here? It would have been better just to die back in, in Egypt. Joshua, what's happening? Why would you bring us here? We should have been content to just stay on the east of Jordan. No, Joshua. That's an annex to the promised land, but it's not the promised land itself. Do not lose faith. In a, in a way, it reassures me that even someone on the level of mighty Joshua had a faith crisis. And if any of you have struggled or wrestled with that, and in moments of desperation have lost hope and lost faith, rest assured that it can happen to the very best of people. Just don't stay there. And God doesn't let Joshua stay there either. In verse 8, he, Joshua says, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? In other words, how am I going to explain our retreat, our defeat? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round. They'll compass up us about. They'll surround us. They'll cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? How interesting. He's partly concerned for himself. What will happen to us? How will I explain this? What's going to happen when, when the word of this spreads? Their hearts won't be water. Ours is. They will come and conquer us instead of us conquering them. And what will that leave of our name, Israel? In fact, better question, what will it leave your name as the God of Israel? Well, God's not so worried about that. He knows where he stands. And that's why he says in verse 10 to Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Like I said, this is God. Come on, Joshua. What are you doing on the ground? You're better than this. You're stronger than this. You can do this. I'm stronger than this. And if you'll just turn to me like you didn't do in the battle of Ai, if you'll turn to me like you did in the battle of Jericho, you see the difference? It wasn't about the enemy forces. It was about sanctifying yourself to see my wonders. It was about relying upon the arm of God instead of the arm of flesh. So get up. Get off your face. This sounds a lot like God speaking to Moses at the Red Sea, doesn't it? 
this sense of, what are you standing there waiting for me to do something? Move forward, Moses, and let's do this. In verse 11, God continues to explain, Israel hath sinned, so this is why you lost. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing. You see, they didn't discern between clean and unclean like they should have. They have also stolen. So there's selfishness. There's self-serving. They have dissembled. There's dishonesty. There's hypocrisy. They dissembled also. They have put it even among their own stuff. So they're thinking it belongs to them instead of belonging to me. There's all kinds of problems described in verse 11. And it's problems among you, not problems in me. I haven't lost my power. You've lost my presence. And it happened because someone among you went against me. In verse 12, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except you destroy the accursed from among you. See, back to the boat on the Sea of Galilee. It's not about the storm outside. It's about the Savior inside. Is God still in your boat? You, you kicked me out of the army because you chose to bring in this accursed thing. And without my presence, you have no power. So, verse 13, up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. Victory will only come from keeping the commandments of God, from being clean, worthy. So, sanctify yourselves. Verse 14, this is how we're going to do it. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. Now, this is God explaining it to Joshua, but also Joshua explaining this to the people. This is what happened in the battle of Ai. This is what went wrong. And this is how we're going to make it right. We're going to bring everyone forward according to your tribes. It shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. Then the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, then the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. Now, do you see what God is trying to do here? We're going to narrow down the possibilities until we find the guilty party. We're going to start with the tribes and single out the guilty tribe. Within the tribe, we'll go to the families. Then we'll single out which household within that family. Then within that household, man by man, until we know who has who has taken the accursed thing? And who has cursed all of Israel as a result? Now, it's important that we see this gradual approach and that we see that it's, the people have been warned about it the night before. Okay, that, That's going to be key. They're told, this is what we're going to do tomorrow morning. Makes me wonder, is the Lord giving the guilty party some time to confess? Because what is about to happen tomorrow? This is, this is kind of a brutal story because when the guilt, we saw it at the very beginning of the chapter, right? We know from the, the get-go, it was Achan. He's the one who did it. And as a result, once Achan is discovered, he and his whole family 
will be stoned and burned. This is a capital crime with capital punishment. It had capital consequences. 36 soldiers died as a result of the Battle of Ai, when it should have been as easy a victory as Jericho had been. But no, Achan's actions forced God out of the camp, out of the army, and all of Israel suffered as a result. To me, there's something powerful about letting them know in advance this is how it's going to go down tomorrow. God is going to zoom in and zero in on. He's going to find who did this. And to me, the unspoken invitation is please come and confess. Let us know who did this guilty thing. And so you wonder what's going on in Akan's mind that night. What are the chances? There's 12 tribes. I'm only from one. Uh, one out of 12 is what, like eight and a half percent chance. I've got pretty good odds. Uh, and then even if he happened to get lucky and think, yeah, it's, this, it's my tribe, then it's still all these other how, families, other households within the family. There's no way God, there's no way Joshua can know that I've, I've covered my tracks really well. Well, not well enough for God. Verse 15, It shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. Ooh, Achan, you still willing to try your luck? When life, yours and your, house, your family's, is on the line? Do we really think we're going to get away with it just because nobody knows what we've done? It's actually interesting. In early America, atheists weren't allowed to testify in court. You see, there were no uh, lie detector tests. You, you just had to trust that witnesses would be honest. And people would swear on the Bible and know that they were swearing upon an all-knowing God. And the concern with atheists was, you don't even believe in ultimate justice. Somebody can lie through life, but they know that they can't trick God. God's going to know. And so they'll at least have that pressuring them into honesty. And so if you don't even have that kind of concern, then how can I possibly trust you? I'm not saying that atheists can't be honest people. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. But the concern, at least in early America, was how do I know I can trust you when you honestly think you can get away with dishonesty? And there is no all-seeing eye. And therefore, you might, you might assume you can get away with something. Well, Akan, what are your assumptions? Do you think you can just get by? In verse 16, Joshua rose up early in the morning. There he is again, always first one out of bed. He brought Israel by their tribes. So picture 12 men being brought forth to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Now can you picture Achan kind of gulping in the distance? Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Who, 8%, 8.5%, but he was right. All right, we're, we're still, it's not done yet. 
And he brought the family of Judah. So now let's bring all of the, the heads of households within the tribe of Judah. And he took the family of the Zarhites, another gulp from Achan. He brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Mm, a louder gulp from Achan. Then he brought the, his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Sabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Those three verses make for a very slow narrative because it's slowly zeroing in. But I think what that, that literary device does is it slows us down and allows... It's like the, seven, or the six days of silent marching around Jericho and seven times on the seventh day, and it's just ratcheting up our anticipation. And you just picture... I mean, if the camera were on Akon the whole time, you just see the anxiety increase. You see the, the heart begin to... The heart rate begin to race. You see the sweat starting to trickle down the temples as it's getting closer and closer and closer to discovery. I can't imagine his anxiety level and how much he must have wished he had come seen Joshua the day before. It was me. Please spare my family at least. We sometimes talk about shame as this horribly negative thing, and often it is, because it comes as an outside kind of enforcer. It wouldn't be necessary if we were more sensitive to guilt. Shame might be a bad thing. Guilt is not. Guilt is the call of conscience. Guilt to the soul is what pain is to the body. And there's nothing wrong with pain when it's when it's inherent, we're not trying to cause pain in others. That's where shame is. But pain that rises up in self, within ourselves is the body's way of saying, something's wrong here. Please address this. Fix it. And guilt is the spirit's way of saying something similar. There's something wrong here. Please turn to the Lord and change. Akan could have done that. He did not. And so as we've zeroed in on him, and now we know the guilty party, verse 19, Joshua says to Akan, my son, interesting he would call him that, showing love instead of harshness, regretting that punishment has to be administered here. My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. Tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. That is a powerful verse to put in perspective what confession really is. This is the willingness of a son or daughter to come clean to a Father in heaven who loves them. It is our chance to give God glory. That's interesting. How is confession giving God glory? Well, it's acknowledging that a glorious God is aware of this, and I cannot hide it from him. And so when I confess to God, I'm admitting, you already know this. And this is something I regret in myself. I want to bring it out into the open so I can come clean, so you can make me clean. 
I'm trying to admit my pain so I can get the help from someone who can make the pain go away. I'm acknowledging my guilt and in the process giving the glory. I'm trying not to hide this. And by not hiding, by not trying to cover this sin myself, I'm turning to him who can cover my nakedness through the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what confession's all about. I've said this before, that some people perceive themselves as good, and other people perceive themselves as bad. Now, we're, both, we're all both good and bad, right? We're a mix. Natural man or woman and spiritual man or woman. Both are the authentic us. But I think people who feel that they're good by nature have the hardest time confessing. Whereas people who feel that, by and large, yeah, I'm just, I'm a sinner. That's just what I am. Find it easier to confess their sins. Remember what Doctrine and Covenant says? Real repentance is confessing and forsaking. That's what makes this so interesting. Because the self-styled good people have a hard time confessing, but an easier time forsaking. Because that's not what I am. I'm never going to do that again, and I'm certainly not going to tell anybody that I did it at that time. Because I'm, I'm a good person, and I don't want anybody to think otherwise. Whereas the self-styled, not-so-good people flip it and have an easier time confessing, but a harder time forsaking. Because there's a sense of, yeah, I did it. I'm probably going to do it again. But you probably already assumed that about me. And, and so here I am, Bishop, once again, telling you that I've, I've done this stupid thing. I'll try harder, but you'll, you'll probably see me again. Do you understand the difference? I think there's something powerful about God trying to help both sides come to him by asking for both halves of the whole. Confess and forsake. Whichever one is easier and whichever one is harder, we need to be able to do both. That's how we give God glory. And that's how he shares that glory with us, by making us good again. By making us whole. Now in verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, And how's this for a beautiful confession? It's just, it came after the fact. It came when a confession was really no longer necessary. He said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. Now, if he stopped there, that sounds like a horribly vague, like, eh, I did thus and thus. Like, no, he's going to get very specific. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, and 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, so this is very specific confession, then I coveted them. So now he's admitting the emotion that was driving the action. I coveted them and took them. So now I'm admitting that I went from emotion to action. This is what I actually did. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And so this is also what I did to try to cover up the consequences. This is a full confession. This is a willingness on his part to truly open himself. This is what I did and why I did it. And I'm sorry. I have sinned before God. 
Now, it's interesting the specific things that he confessed to coveting and taking. Silver, gold, a goodly Babylonish garment. What is it about Babylonian contraband that's so appealing to us? Now, part of me wonders, for the last 40 years, you've been living off manna, and you've had nothing really to call your own. So to get some gold, to get some silver, and I'm finally in a promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey. I want some of that to flow right over to me. All of this wealth that we're putting in the Lord's treasury, isn't there enough to spare that I can hold on to some? Oh, and that goodly Babylonish garment. Remember for 40 years, their shoes didn't wax old, their clothing did not wax old upon them. They've been wearing the same stuff for 40 years. Oh, and look at that. With my old seminary students 20 years ago, I used to call this a Tommy Babylona figure. And it's like I've been stuck wearing the same stuff. And oh, that Tommy Babylona figure would look so... I'd look good in that, seriously. Uh, all eyes on me. Without the thought of, wait, where did you get that? Uh, never mind. Oh, again, what is it about Babylonian contraband? Why are we not content to wear the robes of righteousness? Well, Akan, thank you for that confession. It, I hope it makes a difference in the house of Israel. But it is too late to avoid the consequence of your crime. So in verse 24, Joshua and all Israel with him took Akan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them into the valley of Achor. Now Achor comes from the word meaning to trouble or to disturb. And Achan had troubled Israel. 36 casualties. Joshua said, why hast thou troubled us? There's that play on words. The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. So they were already, they had already, were deceased when the bodies were burned. Okay? This is not an Abinadi kind of moment. But it is capital punishment by stoning, troubling him because they had troubled Israel. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, it reviews this story and it calls Achan the troubler of Israel. There's something about, remember we talked about enforced empathy? If you mistreat why, widows and orphans, then you'll be slain so that your children know what it, it's like to be orphans and your wife knows what it, like, it feels like to be a widow. If you cannot rely upon what it felt like in your past to be a stranger in Egypt, in the way that you treat strangers in Israel, then I'll force you to off into some scattered condition where you'll feel like strangers once again. Akan, you didn't care about others. You didn't care that other people would bear the consequences of your sins. You didn't care that other people might die. And so now you'll care. You didn't feel for them. And so today you will feel like them. And so he did. 
As a result, then, verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his, of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. So yet another memorial, like we've seen so many others already. A heap of stones, 12 of them, by the Jordan. Now a heap of stones there in Achor, hopefully reminding people, anytime they ask, there are blessings that come in following God. There's the Jordan. There are curses that come in giving in to Babylonian tendencies. And that's Achor. Well, that has righted the wrong as far as the scales of justice are concerned. And I still lies ahead. They beat us handily last time with our 3,000 men. So what are we going to do this time in a second round? Chapter 8 describes the ambush of Ai. And the, this time the battle plan, the strategy is a little bit different. Verse 1, the Lord says to Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. The wrong's been righted. The past is behind you. I'm with you again. You've allowed me to, you've given God the glory. And I am now back part of the army of Israel. So take all the people of war with thee and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. So that same promise in advance, it's already yours, but go. And this time go with everybody. Okay, don't trust in the arm of flesh or even a portion, a fraction of it. Let's all go in this together. So Joshua takes 30,000 men this time. That's 10 times the force he went with the first time through. And he comes up with this interesting battle plan where with, among these men, he's going to send some into hiding kind of behind the city of Ai. And then with the rest of his troops, he's going to come march on Ai. And then when Ai comes and sees and thinks, wait a minute, we beat them last time easily. I'm sure we can do it again. You get a sense here that Joshua is banking on, we're not the only people that have a hard time not trusting in the arm of flesh. Well, we, uh, we're, not, we're probably not the only ones like that. So uh, I will probably assume, hey, we did it easily the first time. We'll do it easily the second, just like we did with Jericho and Ai. They'll do it with us. And they'll come out to fight, and we'll just turn around and run. They'll think it's the Battle of I 2.0, and it's happening just like the first time. But as we flee, then the people that are hidden behind the city of I can then come into a city that is left undefended, unprotected. They can then burn the city of I down to the ground. And then when the army that's come out to chase us looks back and sees the, the, the smoke ascending, then they'll know that they've been had. Whether they retreat back to the smoldering ruins of their city or turn and fight right there, we'll have them right where we want them. We can surround them from both sides and defeat the men of Ai. And that's exactly what they do. In fact, there's an, a story in the war chapters in the Book of Mormon where Captain Moroni pulls off a similar victory using the same tactic. I honestly wonder if Captain Moroni had been reading his brass plates and seen how Joshua conquered the Promised Land and used some of his battle plans in order to reconquer some of the cities of the Nephites that the Lamanites had taken. Well, once the Battle of Ai is over, then, verse 30, Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord commanded the children of Israel. 
as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man hath lifted up any iron. And they offered thereon burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Uh, That same imagery of an altar of unhewn stones, a stone cut out of the mountain without hands, rolling forth to fill the earth. Well, the stone's been rolling from Jericho to Ai. It's now going to be spreading forth. And so now that we're on the, the cusp of truly conquering all of Canaan, now that we've got some momentum behind us, and we've learned from our victory and learned from our defeat, let's, let's set this in stone. Let's build the altar that Moses intended, and let's pull off that pep rally that he described. It's at Mount Ebal, after all, right? So we're going to have six tribes on Ebal shouting out curses, six tribes on Gerizim shouting out blessings. Here we stand in the Valley of Decision. We've been making some good ones and some bad ones already in our conquest of Canaan. And so now let's memorialize this. Let's embody it. Let's act it out in hopes that we will decide once and for all that from here on out, we're going to do it God's way, in hopes of receiving God's blessings. In verse 32, he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. So he's doing it just as Moses commanded him. And then 33, half of the tribes over against Mount Gerizim, half of the tribes over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. I would have loved to be part of that pep rally. Bless you, curse you, make up your mind. Then chapter ends, 34. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. This law really is for everyone, and we're responsible for every part of it. We're not picking and choosing. It applies to these people, but not to those, or in this situation, but not in that. We're all in, and we know God is all in with us. Now, chapter 8 goes to chapter 9, and from here on out, the rest of the the book of Joshua is conquest after conquest in pretty quick succession, okay? Uh, We'll fly through this, the rest of our lesson, pretty quickly. But I did want to spend a little time in Joshua 9, because it's this great little story about a group of people called the Gibeonites who have an interesting trick up their sleeve. And trick is exactly what it is. In fact, uh, it's described in verse 4 as being wily, okay? Now, you see, what's happening is uh, Jericho, check. I, check. And, and now all the other kings of Canaan are starting to freak out. Like, okay, the, the heart is melting again like water. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, we really thought we had them after we heard that even a little dinky eye was able to push back the Israelites. It's like, no, that didn't work so well after all. So what, what hope do we have? And pretty soon, all these kingdoms in Canaan start uniting together in, in kind of a, a league against the armies of Israel that are on their way. Now, the Gibeonites are one of these little city-states, and they come up with a unique plan. In verse 4, they did work wilily. <laughs> Interesting adverb. They were crafty. They were sly. They went and made as if they had been ambassadors. Like, oh, we're not from around here. 
We're from a, a far country. In fact, so far, you probably never even heard of it, Israel. Uh, we're nomads, kind of like you, new in the territory. They took old sacks upon their asses, wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, old shoes and clouded upon their feet, old garments upon them. All the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. So this is sly, as was said. They did work wilily. They're trying to make it look like they're from very, very far away and that they've been on the road for ages. Okay? In verse 8, Joshua says to them, Who are ye? From whence come ye? And they said unto him, Oh, from a very far country thy servants are come. Because of the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. I mean, this is almost like the wise men following the star, right? We're some, so far away, but your reputation precedes you. And we've come to see for ourselves this mighty army of this mighty God. They, this is a total lie. They know exactly what's going on. But again, they're, they're in perfect costume for the occasion as they're describing to the Israelites, oh yeah, this bread was fresh when we first started our journey and now look at it, moldy. And this was my newest traveling clothes. And now my shoes and clothes are all falling apart on my feet. Yep, that's just how foreign we happen to be. Well, verse 14 and 15. And the men of Israel, that is, took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Now that's their biggest mistake. Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. You see what the Gibeonites had been doing? Since we're not from here, we don't have any land for you to conquer. And since we're foreigners that are really amazed by your God, maybe we should make a treaty together. What do you say? That we won't attack you and you won't attack us. And since we have nothing to fight over, then why fight at all? And Joshua and the the leaders of Israel are like, yeah, you got a good point there. Yeah, I mean, if you're not from the promised land, if you're not a Canaanite, then then you're not part of, uh, of our enemies. We're not here to conquer your land. Great, yeah. Well, let's sign on the dotted line. Put her there. And their mistake was trusting without asking God. Now, do you remember the problem with the city of Ai? It's amazing what God is trying to teach the, the people of Israel and teach Joshua. Joshua's got some growing up to do too, right? Uh, and part of the first one with I was, you trusted in the arm of flesh? That's the physical trust in the wrong places. Well, now you're trusting in, in what you've heard and what you see in them and what they're saying to you. This is putting trust in the wrong intellectual place. The first was, we're strong enough. We can, we can beat them. The second one was, we know enough. We can trust them. And again, to me, it's really fascinating that God is from both the, the arm of flesh and the arm of the, or the flesh of the mind. That's a horrible way to describe it. But what God is trying to help them understand, you've got to turn to me in all that you do, in the, in the battles you fight, in the decisions you make, in the people you tr- choose to trust. Oh, you... You should have looked to me instead of just looking at them and making false or faulty assumptions. Well, three days later, the Israelites find out they've been had. And they're frustrated. They're upset. 
And some of them want to take it out on the Gibeonites. It's like, what? you? Because that's the classic. After they've signed on the dotted line, it's like the Gibeonites are like, oh, so glad that we're friends now. Because um, we live just over the hill. Um, yeah. And uh, But it, you can't take our territory because you said you wouldn't. What? You... Verse 19, all the princes say unto the congregation, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them, which at least is honorable on Israel's part. Yes, we got tricked. They were wily after all, but we're going to be, we're going to be true to our word. We said we would not fight them. We wouldn't attack them. And, and our word is our bond. We said to God we'd obey him. We said to them we'd honor this agreement and we're going to stick with it, okay? But the Gibeonites know they've gotten away with something. And so in verse 24, they say to Joshua, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. Can you blame us, Joshua? We're scared to death. All these other Canaanite kings are making agreements with each other. We thought we might make an agreement with you. And sorry, but, but what are you going to do? What could we have done? And thank you, thank you for honoring that agreement, even though we basically tricked you into making it. I do love also the way they put that. The Lord, thy God, has given you this land. These are outsiders recognizing their outsider status. This is your God and your land. Can we just be part of this somehow? It's actually interesting because in this chapter, they're a lot, they, they honor the agreement, Israel does, and they make the Gibeonites hewers of wood and drawers of water. Now that sounds like enslavement, but it specifically says hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. Huh. I mean, to keep the sacrificial altars burning, it's going to take a lot of wood to chop. And to keep the, the laver full of cleansing water, it's going to take a lot of water to draw. And what's interesting there, that doesn't sound like mere slavery to me. That sounds like involvement in the work of God. You're not a Levite. I mean, you're not even an Israelite. So you're certainly not a Levite. But drawing water and hewing wood doesn't require authority. This isn't strange fire we're asking you to kindle. Just chop some wood, would you? And I think there's a beautiful thing there. If we're, if we're giving Israel the benefit of the doubt here, uh, we want you to be, if you're going to be a part of us, great. Then really be a part of us. And we want you to be as involved in the work of the Lord as we can let you. And I think there's something beautiful there. Even more beautiful is what they say at the end. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of, of Joshua. Uh, it's chapter 9, verse 25. And I want to take it completely out of context. I know that's usually dangerous. Uh, it's beautiful in context because this is the Gibeonites admitting to the Israelites, we, sorry we tricked you, thanks for honoring it. We do realize that, that you've been had, and if you want, you can take out your frustration on us. Um, please don't. But we realize we're at your mercy. And so this is what they say. But, so it fits beautifully in context. But what I love even more is taking it totally out of context. Often that's dangerous, but here it's safe. And picture us saying this to God. 
not because we've tricked him, but because we've covenanted with him. And we know where we stand in relation to him. Here it is, Joshua 9, verse 25. The Gibeonites say to Joshua, or better yet, we say to God, And now behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us. Do. I just love the way they say that. If you want to make us hewers of wood and drawers of water, great. Because you could have done anything to us. And this is incredibly generous and merciful and kind of you. For us to say something similar to God when times are hard and we wish things were easier or when we've been thrown into the mix of something or given a hard calling or called on a difficult mission or we're just going through life with all of its challenges to humbly and submissively get on our knees and say to God, we are in thine hand. And if it seems right to do that to us, if it seems good that we go through that, then go ahead and do it. This is Jesus in Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. This is us when wherever life brings us to our knees and in faith and submission we can truly say to God, I trust you. Go ahead and do whatever you feel is good and right. My friends, it is right because God is good. And being in his hands, there's no better place to be. Well, the conquest continues. Joshua 10, a famous miracle. There's a group of five Canaanite kings that unite to fight against Gibeon. It's like, wait a minute, you were supposed to be on our side, now you're on their side? And so they're going to go fight against Gibeon. And Gibeon, the Gibeonites are freaked out. Like with, now we were, First we were afraid of the Israelites, now we're afraid of these conglomeration of Canaanites. And, but maybe more than just... Israel's not going to attack us. Will they actually defend us? Are they going to take this agreement, this treaty, to that level? And Israel's willing to. So the Gibeonites come to, to Joshua, ask the Israelites for help. And verse 7, Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, even though it's five enemy kings that have assembled against you. Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Now this is a larger enemy than anything the Israelites had faced before. But again, that reassurance. I've got this. Okay, I've got you. You're in my hand. It's going to be fine. Verse 10, And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. I mean, this is the plagues of Egypt all over again, right? Back then it was hail mingled with fire. Well, here's, it's hail. I guess no fire was needed. These things were so big. And these massive hailstones come raining down. 
and destroy more soldiers in the enemy army than the army of Israel destroyed directly. Which I think is good in terms of uh, who gets the credit for the victory. How much was on the arm of Israel versus how much was the hand of God? Yeah, it's, uh, it's always the hand of God. Okay, just safely assume that, okay? Well, what's interesting here, though, uh, is the battle's not quite done yet. And yet the sun's going down. And if we're going to conquer Canaan and we've already got the enemy on the run, then best thing to do is end the battle now. Often we're, people are saved by the bell in military, and at least in, in, in that ancient world particularly. The sun's down and we can't really fight. And that gives, and we saw this in the Revolutionary War, that often uh, under cover of nightfall, Washington was able to retreat with his armies and then uh, regroup and live to fight another day. Well, that was Joshua's concern. We do not want this conglomeration of enemy kings to live to fight another day. But we're running out of day. Is there any way, God, that you could extend it for us? And here's this famous miracle. Verse 12, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. He said, In the sight of Israel. So for everybody to hear, this is a bold Oh, petition on his part. Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou, moon, in the valley of Ajalon. We need more time to finish the battle, so please lengthen the hours of the day. Sun, stay there. Moon, stay there. And hold out long enough for us to finish this day's work. And so it happened. In verse 13, the sun stood still. The moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down about a whole day. Now, this is going to cause some confusion throughout a lot of the history of astronomy. Because later readers would look at that and take the Bible literally of, oh, the sun stood still which means the sun is what's always moving? Huh. Now, Galileo is going to push back against that and go, no, that's not how it works, right? Copernicus is going to push back against that. Uh, we live in a heliocentric universe, sun-centered, rather, or a solar system, rather than a geocentric, earth-centered solar system. But for a biblical literalist, no, this was all that we needed. And there's a danger when you don't have prophets and apostles with you to say, that's not exactly what, it's what it looked like from ground level, that's for sure. The, if the earth stopped orbiting for a moment or stopped rotating, we should say, then it looks like the sun and the moon stand still. We're just trying to lengthen the hours of the day. Either way, it's a miracle, okay? But don't take your, don't take your astronomy from, from an account that is meant to teach theology. Okay? And that's true of the creation accounts too. Don't take your astronomy nor your geology from scriptural stories that are meant to teach theology. And what's the theology here? Oh, that God has power. In fact, before I get to that theology, let me say this. Because in the book of Helaman, chapter 12, he's walking you through all these things that God can do if he just says it. 
Yea, if he say unto the earth, Thou shalt go back, that it lengthen out the day for many hours, it is done. And thus, according to his word, the earth goeth back, and it appeareth unto man that the sun standeth still. Yea, and behold, this is so, for surely it is the earth that moveth and not the sun. Thank you for your astronomy lesson. But again, it's more than astronomy I'm after here. It's theology. And what's the theology? It's that God is a God of miracles. And more than that specific miracle, I love the thought of God lengthening our, our days. Whether that's the length of our life so that we can accomplish the work that he sent us to earth to accomplish, or lengthening our day, at least what it feels like, so that we can actually accomplish all that was asked of us that day. My, I, my life has been so busy for so long that often my wife will ask me, Honey, is there anything I can do to help? And for over a decade now, <laughs> you know what my response has always been? I'm like, yes, honey, you can. You can command the sun to stand still over the valley of Ajalon. Uh, at least I wish you could. And she smiles, and I smile, and then we get back to work. I often pray for lengthened days and longer hours. Can I just squeeze in a little bit more? Because there's more work to be done and there's more things that need to be accomplished and I just can't squeeze it all in. Now, I've never seen the sun stand still in my life. And the 24 hours is all I get every day, just like everyone else. But I do trust in this theology that God can multiply not our hours, but our effectiveness within the hours we have. That just like tithing, somehow we get more out of our 90% than out of our 100 after we've paid our tithing. And somehow if I've given God his time, it's amazing what he multiplies in the time that's left for me. I learned that in miraculous ways in grad school, where I was doing everything I possibly could with a full-time job and a full-time PhD and a full-time family and big-time church callings, and how on earth am I going to keep my snorkel tip stretched above the surface of the water? I remember on one particular day, it was finals week, and I had a paper due and a final exam covering 1,500 years of Christian history uh, the same, do the same morning. And I thought to myself, okay, I will, I, if I can finish my paper by midnight, then I can study for my exam from midnight until 8 p.m., 8 a.m., and then drive up to Nashville to, to go take the exam. And I'll pull an all-nighter, like so many other all-nighters through grad school. And, but I think with eight hours, that'll be enough time to review 1,500 years of Christian history and be able to to pull off the exam. Well, the paper took longer to finish than I thought. And midnight came, and I'm like, I'm still working, I've got, I'm almost there, and then one o'clock, and then two o'clock, and I've got to do the footnotes, and then two, three o'clock, and four, and then I've got to do the bibliography, and five o'clock, and six. All that, yeah, I pulled the all-nighter all, -night, all, all right, but it was all to finish that paper. And by eight o'clock in the morning, when I realized I need to get going, I gotta start the drive, and I have, had not, I have not had time to study 
my, my, to review my notes on Christian history to get ready for this final exam. And I'm, I'm going to fail it. I knew it. I dreaded it. But what am I going to do? And I checked my emails before heading off to Nashville. And there happened to be an email from the professor of the class with the final exam in an hour or two. And it said, strangest thing for Nashville. We had a snowstorm like you wouldn't believe last night. I'd been totally unaware as I was just buried in my laptop for the last eight hours. We had a crazy snowstorm and the roads are unsafe. If you don't live really close to campus, do not come for the final today. Chances are that roads will be cleared by tomorrow and you can all take the exam tomorrow with no penalty. And to me, I just sat there going, Heavenly Father, thank you for making the sun stand still today. Thank you for holding back the moon. Or in this case, (laughs) dumping down a blizzard in Nashville, Tennessee. It gave me the 24 hours I needed, not only to get a little sleep, but to study for the next day's exam, which once I saw it, I realized I would have flat out failed this 24 hours ago. And instead I aced it because of the help of God. There were so many times where that happened for me through those crazy, crazy years. Times of driving towards an institute class thinking, Heavenly Father, you know I haven't been procrastinating, but I haven't had time to prepare this lesson. And these young adults deserve the best I've got but I haven't had any time to do it. Please fill my mouth because I'm about to open it. And he did. Times when I had no idea how I was going to finish that paper by its due date. And yet, it all came together. That was a prayer I often asked. My Heavenly Father, you know I'm a slow writer. So if you're looking for ways to save a few hours here, um, getting me past this writer's block and helping me put down into, on paper the things that I'm trying to make sense of here. Uh, this is a great place where you could really make a difference. And he did. I, I testify of God's ability to multiply our time. Whether there's no, whether there's, there, there doesn't have to be a, a, a holding still of sun or moon, or better said, the earth's rotation. The real rotation he's after is us turning to him. And I know that as we do so, he gets us across whatever finish line. Or he helps us prioritize and realize what needs to just be left off the schedule. Don't, we don't have to run faster than we have strength. God gives us strength to run. He sometimes changes the finish line. He sometimes lets us know what race we should be running and which ones we shouldn't. And sometimes he simply accepts the slow slog and says, that's fast enough for me. I'm grateful for this miracle. I've seen it over and over in my life. Now, he adds this in verse 14 of Joshua 10. There was no day like that before it or after it. But he doesn't just say, because the day lengthened. He says, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. 
So if you thought it's amazing that God can make time extend, the real miracle, as far as Israel was concerned, wait, God will take our advice sometimes? Really? He'll listen to us and make it happen? Now that's something I've never considered. There's a miracle. No day like that before, okay? It's like the brother of Jared with his 16 stones. I know you can do anything. Would you consider doing this? Oh, yeah, it hadn't crossed my mind, but it's cute. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm happy to. And for God to take our advice, for us to say, God, this is the best plan I could come up with. Will you help it come to fruition? You bet I will. And so he does. Well, Joshua then takes the five defeated kings, this conglomeration uh, of enemies. He tells his men to put their feet upon their necks. This is war, okay? War is hell. But then in verse 25, Joshua says to his people, Fear not, nor be dismayed. And then how's this? this for poetic reminder? Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And then those kings were executed. It's one thing for the people back in chapter 1 to encourage Joshua. Be strong and have a good courage. Now he's encouraging them with the evidence right before them, right under their feet, that God is here. Oh, there's this sense of they may bruise thy heel, but he will crush thy head. God is with us. Bank on that. The rest of the chapter then describes more of the same. Israel's conquests throughout Canaan. By the time you get to verse 42, all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And how can you not win when God is in charge? Chapter 11, then, the conquest continues. In fact, the rest of the book of Joshua is just more stories of these conquests. In chapter 11, it's a still larger conglomeration of kings. It's escalating. It's getting worse and worse, harder and harder. Well, at least it would be if God weren't with us. In verse 4, we see what Israel's up against. They, the enemy kings, went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude with horses and chariots, very many. Now that phrase, sand like the seashore, that should make us think of the Abrahamic covenant. Wait a minute, that was supposed to be Israel. Well, it is, and it will yet be. So no matter what you're up against, even if that seems as innumerable as the sands of the sea, the blessings of God will always outweigh and outnumber that. Trust in it. They did. Verse 6, the Lord says to Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up, all slain before Israel. And so he did. By the time you get to verse 15, As the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. And what had God commanded Moses? And Moses commanded Joshua, Go conquer the promised land. And that's exactly what Joshua is doing through all of these chapters. Everything that God had commanded. I love the phrase, he left nothing undone. This is exact obedience. This is military discipline. And that's what Israel is offering. 
In verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. We finally have peace prevailing in the promised land. Now, I suppose you could end the book of Joshua right there, because they've conquered, right? Well, yes and no. A few other details in these remaining chapters. Chapter 12 keeps listing king after king after king uh, among the Canaanites who have been defeated by the Israelites. There's not an inhabitant left in any of these kingdoms. Seems like all the work is done by the time you're done with Joshua 12. But Joshua 13 begins, verse 1, Now Joshua was old and stricken in years. And the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years. It's like, yeah, I know. Did you have to repeat the obvious? <laughs> but he says this, There remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said back in chapter 12 that it was all done. I mean, back at the end of 11, we finally have peace. Well, yeah, relatively speaking. But are you really finished? You've gotten to a certain point, maybe a plateau, but have you gotten all the way up? to the summit? Have you really conquered the whole thing? Or are you just satisfied with where you happen to be right now? To me, there's something powerful about that phrase. There yet remaineth yet very much. We have a life of eternal progression. We have an eternity of eternal progression ahead. So let's keep progressing. This is a long process. And even though you, Joshua, are old and well-stricken in years, there'll be work for your successors. Moses didn't get you all the way through. Neither will you. That's okay. To me, there's something powerful that the only one that lives... Well, the conquest of Canaan, okay, the establishment of Zion, the preparation of the earth for the second coming of Christ, is such a long process that the process outlives any of its individual participants. And that's good, because that means only God deserves the glory. He's the only one that outlives the process itself, which means he, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, is the only one who's been here for the duration. And so all glory to him. The inheritance of the two and a half tribes that settled east of Jordan is then described by the end of Joshua 13. And then chapter 14 describes the inheritances of the nine and a half tribes that settled west of Jordan in the official promised land. In 14.6, then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, concerning me and thee in Kadesh Barnea. Ah, oh, so glad we get to catch a glimpse of Caleb one last time. We kind of lost sight of him, didn't we? He and Joshua were the young spies back in the book of Numbers, full of faith. We can do this. Unfortunately, they were ignored, and then they had to endure the 40 years of wander, wander, die, wander, die. Can you picture those two old-timers at the banks of the Jordan River when the priests were about to dip their feet in the brim? Uh, can you picture the deja vu as these two old mission companions 
are kind of smiling, going, Hey, Joshua, you remember this? <laughs> and Joshua, oh, yeah. And here's these two old timers just, we could have done this 40 years ago. We were ready. I'm still ready. I'm still ready to go in. Are you? And we've seen Joshua's readiness for the last 13 chapters. Well, here's Caleb's readiness. Chapter 14, verse 7, he says, Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to espy out the land. And I brought him word again, as it was in mine heart. I wasn't faking my faith back then. I really did believe God would deliver us. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And if there's one thing worth remembering about Caleb, it's that wholehearted discipleship, full-fledged faith, no fear at all. And he certainly hasn't ga- hadn't developed any fear in the meantime. Uh, he was promised to outlive his generation, and he did. He was promised to receive an inheritance in the land of promise, and here he is. So verse 10, he keeps saying to Joshua, Now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, as he said, these forty and five years. He gives God credit the whole time. Even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old. Here's an 85-year-old looking back on a lifetime of service and sacrifice, a lifetime of faith. And I'm, I'm feeling as strong now at 85 as I did at 40 when I first spied out the promised land. That's what he says in 11. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now. For war, both to go out, to come in. He hadn't slowed down with age at all. At least he didn't feel like he had. He still felt the fires of faith. He's still ready to move forward. Yeah, he's not looking back. This, is, this to me is like prophets and apostles today. 85, (laughs) it seems young to Caleb. It sure seems young to Russell M. Nelson, who just broke Gordon B. Hinckley's record for the oldest living president of the church. I don't know about you, but prophets and apostles have really made me recalibrate old age. You heard the story of the man that was called, I think, to be a mission president in his 70s. And he thought, well, I'm in my 70s. And I think it was David B. Haight who extended the calling and just said, ah, 70s? To be young again. Wow. In fact, speaking of David B. Haight, who was also one of the oldest living apostles in this dispensation, he, he just never slowed down. He said when he was a young boy, his dad was one of the first people in town to buy a, a Ford Model T. And young David B. Haight was so excited about this new contraption. He just wanted to try it out. And he'd seen his dad, he'd learned, he'd think he, he thought he knew how he could to start it. And so one day he cranked it up and the engine roared to life and he jumped in and started driving. And he was having the time of his life as this young boy until he realized, I don't know how to stop it. Uh, what do I do? I don't know how to stop this thing. And so wisely, guess what he figured out? He knew it ran on gas, and so he just kept driving around his block or the farm or whatever it was. He just kept driving until the car ran out of gas, 
and then just died wherever it was. And then he ran home with tail between legs and confessed to dad what he'd done. I don't know of a better analogy for how prophets and apostles serve their serve the Lord through the, the rest of their lives. They know how to start. They don't know how to stop. And they just keep going until they run out of gas. They stop wherever they are and then come running home to Father. I see that in Caleb, someone who wants to waste and wear out his life in service to God. I remember as a young boy, the first time I pulled like an eight-hour church day with my three-hour block and then a friend's three-hour block and then some meetings for the stake youth council. And then I was a senior in high school just coming home beaming and saying to my dad, Dad, I pulled off an eight-hour church day. And my dad, in the stake presidency at the time, just smiled and said, eight hours, that's a pretty good start, son. And then he said words I hope I'll never forget. He said, son, nothing beats exhaustion in the Lord's service. That phrase got me through my mission. That phrase has got me through a lot of long days with suns standing still or moons hanging over the valley of Ajalon. Nothing beats exhaustion in the Lord's service. And Caleb is willing to exhaust himself in the service of God. So he says in verse 12, Now therefore, give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there. Those were the giants that everybody feared most. That the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. Caleb, you're right. You haven't changed a bit in 45 years. That sounds almost exactly what you said a generation ago when you first saw those giants. And now, as an old man, you're still ready to take them on? Well, of course, because God's not any older now than he was back then. And as long as God's with me now, as he would have been with us then if we'd had faith, then of course I can drive out the Anakim. So give me this mountain. I've got heights yet to climb. Some of you old-timers, by the way, might remember another old Caleb saying the same words. This Caleb happened to be a Kimball, namely Spencer W. Kimball, who was doubled over with age, probably around 85 himself at the time. But in 1979, at a general conference, see, President Kimball was never even supposed to live long enough to be president of the church. And when he became president of the church, nobody thought he'd live very long. And then during, what, it was it a 12 or 13 year ministry, nobody could keep up with him as he lengthened his stride. He was unstoppable. And in that October 1979 conference, he channeled his inner Caleb and called the rest of the church to become more like that mighty man of faith from Joshua chapter 14. President Kimball said, This is my feeling for the work at this moment. There are great challenges ahead of us, giant opportunities to be met. 
I welcome that exciting prospect and feel to say to the Lord humbly, give me this mountain. Give me these challenges. Humbly, I give this pledge to the Lord and to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, fellow workers in this sacred cause of Christ. I will go forward with faith in the God of Israel, knowing that he will guide and direct us and lead us finally to the accomplishment of his purposes and to our promised land and our promised blessings. Can you feel President Kimball's faith in those words? Can you sense what it would have been like to hear Caleb thunder, give me this mountain? There are still mountains ahead. I sense in President Nelson no fear to take the climb. I pray that you and I, fellow disciples, fellow servants, may be fellow holders of that faith and start climbing ourselves. Verse 13 then. Joshua blessed him, this old friend of his, and gave unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron therefore became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Now Hebron, Hebron's one of those places you just, if you ever get to go to Israel, you'll pray that you'll get to go to Hebron. When we were there as, as college students, uh, it was, it's, there was so much conflict in the Middle East. Hebron always seems to be a place where it, it seems to, the sparks seem to fly. And so it was typically closed off from groups being able to go see it. If I remember correctly, at the time I was in Israel, the head of the FBI in Israel was a Latter-day Saint. I don't know if FBI, CIA, I don't know. Some American diplomat or secret, I don't know. Anyway, there was somebody <laughs> in the American uh, intelligence that was a member of the church that was in Israel, and he would keep us posted at the Jerusalem Center if there were anything going down. It's like, today's a day to stay in the Jerusalem Center. Uh, we don't know what, but there's something out there. Stay safe. Well, we got a phone call one day that said, hey, if you, if you want to go to Hebron, this weekend might be your one chance to do it. Uh, so Go. I, we're sensing some safety, and I don't know how long this window is going to stay open. So we changed our plans uh, for the field trip for that week, and we booked it down to Hebron. Because Hebron, more than just the dwelling or the place of inheritance for Caleb, was the inheritance of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. Hebron is known as the site of the tomb of the patriarchs. And we got to go. It's one of the holiest places in Judaism, one of the few that's, uh, one of the holiest that's outside of Jerusalem, at least. And to go there to see where, where the patriarchs and matriarchs are memorialized, to me it just seems fitting that Caleb would end up staying there. That that would be his place of inheritance, because he deserves to be numbered among the great ones. He was a great one himself, uh, fitting that he would reconquer the tomb of the patriarchs. Well, if that's his inheritance, chapter 15 then expands to see the tribe of Judah's inheritance, since Caleb was from that tribe himself. The land is granted to the tribe of Judah. It's all described in chapter 15. All their cities are listed. It's a long chapter because it's a big tribe. 
uh, until you get to verse 63, the last verse of the chapter. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. So whoever's writing this after the fact or redacting or editing the records of, of Joshua is reflecting on the fact that, yeah, the Jebusites are still here. We just can't drive them out. And where do they happen to live? Ah, Jerusalem. Now, it's not going to be until you get to King David, who's finally able to drive out the Jebusites, conquer Jerusalem for Israel. That's why they call it the city of David. And, and that, to me, speaks volumes also of, of the ultimate conquest. And it's going to be the city of God. Specifically, it's going to be the house of God. Our ultimate conquest is Zion. That's our ultimate goal. There's the city of God upon the earth. No wonder it takes Israel so long to finally win that territory. There's something to be said for acknowledging some places are just harder to conquer than others. And temple ground might be the greatest conquest of all. As the bells of hell ring all around it, Zion, the building of Zion, will be the ultimate conquest in this Canaanite world of ours. It might be the last to finally, to finally go. And I pray that we can be valiant and faithful enough to actually get there. David was. We'll see that in a few weeks. Then chapter 16, well, let's see Ephraim's inheritance. We're just flying through the chapters now. 15 was for Judah, 16 is for Ephraim. Interesting, we'd see those two, uh, those two tribes singled out first. The political leadership, Judah. The spiritual leadership, Ephraim. These birthrights, so to speak. The inheritance of the tribe of Ephraim is described throughout chapter 16. And that chapter ends, verse 10, and they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. Now, that's an interesting one. So Judah conquers everything. Ah, but Jerusalem, that they just couldn't do. Ephraim conquers everything. Ah, but there's still some Canaanites there. Now, was this mercy on the Ephraimites' part? Maybe. Was this... Oh, succumbing to some sense of security, like, ah, close enough, we're good. There's only a few of them. It's a little pocket uh, of, of Canaanites, and they can't do us harm. In fact, we can have them serve under tribute. Why just destroy them and take their land when we can have them stay and work for us? We can tax them, and, and then they're, they're providing for us in our life of ease or luxury. Oh, uh-oh. That doesn't sound good. Is this opening the door to potential problems later on? Well, it seems like that's the case. When, we want, when God commands us to conquer everything, he does mean everything. When he says, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, he means that. And so he does want us to become completely clean through Christ. Well, chapter 17, now we get Manasseh's inheritance, the other half-tribe from, from Joseph, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. We already saw that half the tribe of Manasseh took their territory east of Jordan, uh, outside the box, but here's the side that's in it. Uh, the daughters of Zelophehad are mentioned again by name, which to me is so cool. 
these three, these five women that are not forgotten. And they were, hey, we're not, we're an outside the box uh, set of circumstances ourselves. Our father had, had no son. So when we get our, when he gets his tribal inheritance, what's going to become of that if he has no sons to pass it down to? So their request made to Moses is now honored by Joshua. Very cool. Uh, in verse 12 and 13, more about the tribe of Manasseh. The children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. A few are listed. But the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Yet it came to pass, when the children of Israel were waxen strong, that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. Now this maybe helps us understand better the Canaanites that were left in Ephraim's inheritance. Learning from Manasseh, is it the same problem? You see, early on it says Manasseh could not drive them out. But then later it says they did not drive them out. And the difference was early on they couldn't because they weren't strong enough. The problem was later when they were strong enough, they didn't. And there, that spells disaster. I hope that alerts us to some potential danger that if you're at a place where you can't fully conquer the natural man or woman within you, but you're doing the very best you can, and God takes that and understands, and, and I'll take anything, you, I'll take you where you are. And I just want you to come. And the, ch- the question is, are we content to remain there? I was good enough for God that, with that, and so why, why change? Oh, you were good enough because that was the best you could be. But you've grown in strength by then. God has helped you grow up in Him. It's time to conquer what used to be unconquerable. You can do this now. Chapter 17 goes on then, describing some more things about Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are both very large tribes. They're the birthright, okay? Double portion for Joseph, right? But at a certain point, they feel like they need more land than what they've been allotted. Well, Joshua tells them, fine, go get more land. That's not a problem. He says, go to the wood country, the hill country, wooded, and clear out the timber for an inheritance. But verse 16, the children of Joseph respond, the hill is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. So yeah, we need more space, but that space, eh, is that even going to be enough? Plus it's all wooded and that's going to require all kinds of work. And the Canaanites that live there, they've got chariots of iron for crying out loud. That, no, do you have any easier territory we could expand into? Oh, come on, Ephraim and Manasseh. Is that what we're looking for? Where's Caleb's spirit in you? Give me this mountain. Give me this hilly country. Give me the forest. I can chop it down. Give me the land of these Canaanites, even if they have chariots of iron, because I have faith in a God that's even stronger. That's how, jo- that's how Joshua responds to them. Verse 17. Thou art a great people, and hast great power. At least you would if you'll trust in God. Thou shalt not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine. For it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down. And the outgoings of it shall be thine, for thou shalt drive out the Canaanites. Though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. I love that Joshua was like, come on, Ephraim and Manasseh. You got this. 
I don't care how big they are. I don't care how strong they are. God is bigger. God is stronger. Just trust in him. And do some work for crying out loud, okay? If you want to grow, it's not a downhill slide. It's an upward climb. And so roll up your sleeves and start climbing. Now, chapter 18, then, of Joshua. I mean, the land is all being settled and inherited. But what about the house of God? We can't conquer Jerusalem yet, so the site of the temple is not yet ours. But how about a site for the tabernacle? And that's what's set up in Joshua 18. Verse 1, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. Shiloh was a word we saw back in the patriarchal blessings of the tribes of Israel. Shiloh might be short for Asherloh, which means him whose right it is. Ah, yes, the God of Israel has rights to all of these lands. So let's set up our little temple square, somewhere in the middle of it all. Here at Shiloh, where his right will be. And Shiloh will play a part in the history of Israel moving forward. Verse 2, there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess their land, which the Lord God of your fathers hath given you? It's like, come on, guys, what are you waiting for? What are you slacking off for? Just standing around waiting for God to map it all out for you? No, the land's been given. There's that beautiful past tense again. It's yours. Go take it. In my patriarchal blessing, it speaks of spiritual gifts. And then it says, these are your gifts. I really wish there was a period after that. Would have been so easy. Instead, there's a comma. It says, these are your gifts, comma, and you must claim them. And then I finally get the period. Oh, man. Really? They're mine, but now I got to go do something to claim them? I got to go do something to develop them? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And the same sense is here. Why Don't slack. Go take the land God has given you. So what Joshua does is he calls for three men from each of these seven tribes remaining and sends them throughout the land and tells them to divide it into seven parts. That's verse 6. You shall therefore describe the land into seven parts and bring the description hither to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Now, this is going to be some work and some reliance upon the Lord. Go out and scope out the land and divide it up into seven inheritances. Then come back and I'll cast lots. Like, wait, wait, you're like, roll the dice? Well, no. Uh, Well, yes and no. I'm going to turn to the Lord and say, which of these tribes should go in each of these spots? We've got seven tribes. We now have seven pieces of geography, pieces of territory, and then we'll make all the uh, assignments. Now, that's actually really wise because it's going to motivate those 21 men. Each of them is probably going to be first and foremost concerned about their own tribe and its inheritance. So you're looking around the land going, oh, that sounds really good. Let's make sure we keep it for us, you fellow, my fellow Zebulonites. But meanwhile, the Asherites, their three, are getting together going, no, I really like this territory, and how do we make sure that we keep it for ourselves? And if we could kind of do a little gerrymandering and get the best of all these kinds of things, wait, we're going to divide it up, and then we don't get to pick which one we get? Oh. Okay, well, now we're all really motivated to make sure these seven inheritances are as equal as they possibly can be. 
Do you ever do that with your kids where it's like, oh, only one cookie and the two want it and say, okay, fine. One of you splits it and the, the one's going to, it's going to split. It. It's like, yeah, sweet. I can make a big half. But then the parent says, and the other gets first pick. Wait, what? I, I split and he picks? Well, you better believe I'm going to make this as even as possible since I know I'm getting the, the smaller half. Let's make this truly 50-50. So good motivation. Each tribe is going to be a little different size and shape and so on. But ideally, there will be redeeming features about every single one. So that no matter which one you happen to be a part of, no matter which one you get, you'll be grateful. That's true of tribal inheritances and patriarchal blessings too. Specifically, by the end of Joshua 18, the inheritance of Benjamin is described. Then 19, we got six tribes. We've had 12, right? Then we, two and a half are over there. And you get Judah, you get Ephraim, you get Manasseh. We're getting down. We got Benjamin. Now we got six more tribes to cover. In chapter 19, Simeon's inheritance is described. In verse 9, a little detail about it. Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon. For the part of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of them. You see, Simeon's is an interesting one. Depending on which map you look at, they're not all exactly the same. But it seems that uh, Simeon has this little, it's like the donut hole, surrounded by the donut of Judah. And so the Simeonites live among the Judites there in the southern part of, of Israel. And I love the thought there, well, the people of the children of Judah have more than they need. Oh, perfect. Sound like consecration? I have more than I need to meet my needs. And so, Simeon, need some place to stay? You can stay right here with us, okay? We'll carve out space from among us to give to you. If you have more than you need, then share. It's as simple as that. Then inheritances are described for Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Nephtali, and Dan. And then you get to verse 47. And the coast of the children of Dan went out too little for them. So this one isn't quite the right fit. Therefore the children of Dan went up to fight against Leshem and took it and smote it with the edge of the sword and possessed it and dwelt therein and called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan their father. Now, I wouldn't go about it this way in our day, since we're not fighting over geographies anymore. But in terms of, I love the thought of advocating for yourself if you need something more than what you have. This might be you're given a calling and I I just need more support. Ask for it. This might be, I I don't know, I'll I'll let the Spirit work on you on that one. But to me, there's something powerful about helping your leaders see your constraints, what you're up against, and advocating for yourself, and, and expanding in areas that are, that are needed. And so it was for the tribe of Dan. Well, chapter 20 then carves out some, some cities of refuge. We saw those described in the books of Moses, that you're going to need places if someone is guilty of involuntary manslaughter, then they need a place to run. Uh, so that people can cool down in the heat of the moment and not just kill them out of vengeance. That's what chapter 20 is all about. And these cities of refuge are designated throughout Israel. Verse 4 adds this detail, though. 
When he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city, and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. That's a part I don't remember seeing in the previous descriptions, that he's supposed to come and declare his cause. It's not just a matter of, I'm on home base and you can't get me. It's, can I please find safety under the shelter of your wings? This is what's happened. This is what I've done. This is where my heart was, and I didn't mean to, and I'm sorry, and I'm scared. Here I am confessing, giving God glory. Will you please provide protection for me? And so they do. I think we could add to that in our own day to make it a little bit more, more relevant. Are we willing to be places of refuge when people come and declare their cause? I'm thinking of refugees. I'm thinking of immigrants. I'm thinking of strangers moving into the neighborhood, not yet be, to become friends, but will we let them? Can we carve out space? I mean, the people of Judah did it for the whole tribe of Simeon. Can we not carve out cities of refuge within our tribes? Can we not carve out space within our hearts, within our circles of friends for newcomers? no matter how different they might be. Then we saw cities of refuge. How about cities, Levitical cities? That's now in chapter 21. Because the Levites, their inheritance is priesthood. It's not a place. And so throughout the tribes of Israel, there will be designated Levitical cities since everyone, well, let's put it this way, priesthood, the holders of the priesthood, the Levites, deserve to have a place to call their own. But the people of Israel deserve to have access to the blessings of the priesthood. So this is a win-win situation for everybody. And in Joshua 21, these Levitical cities are named throughout all of Israel. And once that's done, the conquest of Canaan is basically complete and everyone's settled in to the promised land. You get to the end of Joshua 21 in verse 43 and 44. The Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. The promised land is everything I promised. I told you I'd give you rest here. So go ahead and rest. Verse 45, There failed not aught of any good thing, which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel, all came to pass. That could be such a beautiful ending of this book. We still have three more chapters, but to leave it right there and just rest there for a moment, it all came to pass. God kept his word. Go figure, since he is the word. Can we trust him? Totally. Let us place our faith in him. Chapter 22, then, and 23 and 24, these final three chapters of the book of Joshua. Fascinating what happens. You see, we're done. Everything's good. We're finished. But now that we've conquered the promised land, and all the tribes have their inheritances, and the cities of refuge, and the Levitical cities, and we're, we're good to go. Well, then th two and a half hands go up. 
right? Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, saying, so can we go home now to our eastern Jordan lands of inheritance? And Joshua is, of course you can't. Thank you. Thank you for honoring unity first. We now can afford to carve out room for diversity. Thank you for being one with us and proving that the, the promised land mattered to you. That you weren't just trying to live outside the box from the very beginning. It's like, no, there's certain things and, and ways of living that are still within the broader promise. And I'm not trying to become an exception to the rule. I'm proving my obedience to the rule, which I hope will reassure you when I, when I recognize this exceptional circumstance. That's, to me, the, the challenge of exceptions and rules. Some people think there should be no exceptions. And other people think there should be no rules. And there needs to be a balance. Here's a really important contrary to prove. Honoring rules. And honoring exceptions. And if you're the, the person in the exception, can you live in such a way that people still know you're honoring the rule? That's hard. And if you're a rule keeper, can you trust people enough when they are the exception that they know that it is God who has made the exception for them? Can we get along on both sides or do we just judge each other? And people outside that are judging, like, oh, you judgmental people that, are, that think there's only the rule. But then also the rule, are we, are we judging too harshly? I don't know. There's, there's something here, and I love what Joshua 22 does to help us navigate this, at least to give us time to think our way through it. See, what happens is these two and a half tribes go back east of Jordan. Verse 2, Joshua says to them, Ye have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. Ye have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. In other words, you have proven your loyalty. You have shown your obedience. Unity came first, and we know you're not trying to break rules. We just realize that there are times that there must be some exceptions. So thank you for more than You're not giving lip service. You've proven that the rule matters to you. No wonder you can be trusted with the exception. Go live it. Now verse 4, he says, Now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren, as he promised them. Now therefore return ye, and get ye unto your tents, and unto the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side Jordan. You've prioritized unity. Now here's your flexibility. Diversity can be safely granted. If you remember, I've said this before, the Leahona only appeared after Lehi and Nephi proved their absolute obedience to iron rod kind of principles. Here's some flexibility after the fixity. Here's some spirit of the law after you've mastered the letter of the law. Too often, I think, we're looking for, we claim the spirit of the law as our excuse for completely ignoring the letter of the law. No, the spirit of the law is there to let you know, I know you are honoring the letter. This is an exception that the spirit is guiding you on. 
Be okay with that. And be okay with other people in that. Okay? How about this, though? Verse 5. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cleave unto him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Yes, there is flexibility and freedom, but please do not take it too far. As you leave this side of Jordan, do not leave the promised land behind you. Take it with you into that eastern annex. I love the list of verbs. Take heed. Do. Love. Walk. Keep. Cleave. Serve. And to anyone who feels that they don't fit the mold and are carving out space within the kingdom of God where you can live the gospel, make sure you're really living the gospel. It doesn't have to look the same as the way everyone else lives it. There are some non-negotiables. There are some commandments we all are required to keep. But there's beautiful individuality in the kingdom of God. There is difference. There is culture. There is uniqueness. There's beautiful, beautiful things. Just make sure you love God and cleave to Him throughout it all. Well, they decide to. They want to. They've agreed to. In verse 10, when they came into the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. Now, this is where the story really gets interesting because why were they doing that? And what is this altar for? Now, Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh know exactly what it's for. They're the ones that built it. Uh, but the other nine and a half tribes didn't build it. They don't know what's going on. And they see an altar of sacrifice going up by the Jordan River when it's, no, 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 no. Sacrifice is, is limited to the place that God has named to place his name there. And right now that's Shiloh. That's the place where it's him whose right it is. And you cannot usurp that right and create sacred space of your own? What are you doing? What are you setting up altars? What, the false gods? Are you breaking with Israel? We're going to see that later with, with altars in, in Dan and, and in Bethel when the northern kingdom splits from the southern and we, we don't have a Jerusalem in our territory. And so we're going to have false altars to false gods. And what are we Is that what's happening here? Well, the Western tribes, the nine and a half, they hear about it, and they're ticked. They're concerned. They gather together at Shiloh, the place of the altar. And they're ready to go to war against those Eastern tribes. Uh, Yikes. We we see north versus south in terms of uh, Israel versus Judah later in Rehoboam and Jeroboam's day. Well, now we get an east and west in Joshua's day. And we just conquered. We were all one on this. And Okay, careful. And the West is ready to march off to war against the East. Well, thankfully, maybe they learned their lesson with the Gibeonites. Let's not jump to conclusions. 
maybe we should uh, ask God about things. Maybe we should explore things a little bit better. Maybe it was Joshua saying, yeah, I saw a guy with sword uh, unsheathed. I was a little concerned. I asked him who he was. He was on our side. So maybe it'd be wise to at least ask those two and a half tribes on the east, you still with us or are you now against us? So the high priest or the son of the high priest, a prince from each of these western tribes goes east to find out what are you guys thinking in building this altar. Verse 16, this is what they say. Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord, What trespass is this that ye have committed against the God of Israel? To turn away this day from following the Lord, and that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against the Lord? So that's our assumption. You're doing this as an act of defiance. In verse 17, is the iniquity of Peor too little for us? Remember, that was in, with Balaam. That was mingling with others in the worship of their false gods. Is, is that too little that you're going to do it all over again? From which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord. In other words, do you remember how long it took us to get over the plagues, the, the horrible consequences of our of our compromises with wicked culture, we cannot allow that to happen again. And so we're ready to fight you over this. In 18, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord. Is that what you're doing? And it will be seen ye rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Remember, we're in this all together. If God was mad at the whole congregation when only Achan alone took the accursed thing. Well, here you guys are building the accursed thing. And you better believe God's going to take it out on all of us. Verse 19, Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth. Take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. I love verse 19 in all of this. And they're ticked. They're mad. And they're threatening them. What are you thinking? Why would you do this? Is that not enough? Yeah, any understand how hard it was for us to get over earlier iniquity? However, if you're doing this because you don't think there's room for you, you get, go back to the whole idea of rules and exceptions and majorities and minorities within the church. And this concern sometimes of what are you doing? Why are you living that way? Or why do you think that's okay? And, and what's interesting is do we give people the benefit of the doubt or just misjudge and condemn them harshly? But then in 19, if it's because you don't think you can fit, then please allow us to make room for you. That's the sense in verse 19. If there's not enough space for you, if even, or if your land is unclean and you're trying to create an altar to make yours holy land too, if you don't feel like you fit in the holy land and you're trying to make altars or tabernacles or whatever you're going to do over there in unauthorized locations, then please come home and we'll carve out whatever space you need. Take possession among us. So beautiful. In verse 20, then one last reminder. 
of what they're up against. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? That man perished not alone in his iniquity. No man is an island. No sins are truly private. We really are all in this together. And so, either you're against us and we will destroy you, or you're with us and we really want you to be with us. Well, the two and a half tribes respond in verse 22. Whoa, 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 guys. So glad you asked before you attacked us. The Lord God of gods. Again, the Lord God of gods. In other words, Jehovah is the God over any other God there might be. We're not getting sucked into some false pantheon. We learned that in Egypt. We saw that in Canaan. There is no God like him. The Lord God of gods, he knoweth. And Israel, he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. In other words, please give us a chance to explain ourselves. God knows our heart. Let us give you the chance to know our heart as well. Here it is, verse 23. If you think that we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offering or meat offering, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, then let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, now, that, the way it's phrased is a little hard to understand. What they're saying is, you really think we're doing this so we set up our own false site of sacrifice? You really think we've apostatized and that's why we've done it? No, it's because we're scared to death of apostatizing that we've done it. We share your exact concerns. And we set up this altar there as a, as a caution, as a reminder that the only real place of sacrifice is at Shiloh, there in the Promised Land. We're holding to the rule, even though we know we are living an exception. We're honoring that. And we're trying to reassure our own people that we know where real sacrifice is to be offered. This is an altar of commemoration and commitment, not an, offer, an, an altar of offering sin offerings and, and Priest, uh, or trespass offerings or peace offerings or anything, any of the other offerings that only the Levites can offer at Shiloh, at the tabernacle. It's not that at all. Please trust us that we share your concern. In fact, we feel it deeply ourselves. But then this other added detail, verse 24 and 5, saying, in time to come, your children might speak unto our children, saying, What have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made Jordan a border between us and you, ye children of Reuben and the children of Gad. Ye have no part in the Lord. So shall your children make our children cease from fearing the Lord. You see what amazes me there? Is on the one hand, it's not just that we're afraid of our children forgetting you, what they really said is, we're afraid of your children forgetting us. Part of this is to remind our people that we're Israelites. And as we look west and see this altar at Jordan, it is pointing us further westward to the tabernacle of God. That's where the real authority lies. That will be a reminder to us but we're also hoping it will be a reminder to you 
that if you look eastward and downward at us here on the Transjordan Plain, we hope that you will see us through the lens of this altar. You'll see us standing here behind it. And we really do stand behind Israel and its sacrifices and its authority. We, we are part of Israel. Because someday, when all these stories and our unity is forgotten, you might look and see the Jordan River and say, wait a minute, that's the border, and they're on the other side. So there's no commitment there. And they're no part of, part of Israel. See, what's interesting to me here is that there's a fear among the minority that the mainstream will end up cutting us off. So they're not just reminding their own children to stay loyal. They're reminding the other's children to stay open. And that's the contrary we have to prove generation after generation. I really do pray the Holy Ghost will tell you specifically what all this represents. And whether you're on the marginal side or the mainstream side, and how we can all stay one and stay Zion. If, if someday the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, then we can't look at little Jordans as some kind of boundaries or barriers to keep people out. We're trying to help everyone feel like they're a part of something bigger than they are the kingdom of God on earth. So this was their plan, 26. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, that's not what this is for, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. That's where it all comes together. We'll look to you through the altar. I hope you'll look to us through the altar as well. And see each other through that lens of shared commitment, loyalty to the Lord, and be open and understanding towards one another. At the end of the day, we... We've got to get past assuming that other people are doing something wrong when they may just be doing something incredibly right. Those two and a half tribes were. Verse 29, they reconfirm it. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings, for meat offerings, for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle. That's the only place, and it's the only place for us. Our loyalty is to God, where we have no disloyalty to his people. Then, once the Westerners hear it, verse 30, it pleased them. Okay, good. And they said, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because ye have not committed this trespass against the Lord. Now ye have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And all is well. The, the book of Joshua then can end. With these two final chapters, 23 and 24, which are Joshua's final charge. It's done. And I'm old and well-stricken. God reminds me of that. And I'm ready to pass the baton on to later leaders. But before I go, 
Can I remind you of the things that matter most to me? This is last lecture for Joshua. He gathers Israel together and in verse 3 says, Ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Have you come to know the Lord through all these experiences? This rising generation, have you risen up in him? Do you know him? Because there's still a lot of work yet to, to be done. Yes, though we've conquered the promised land, there's little pockets of places yet to be conquered. Verse 6, Be ye therefore very courageous. Have we seen that counsel a few times already? Be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. You see, that's going to be harder to do if you have outside influences still all around you. So make sure you hold to the law of the Lord. In verse 7, that ye come not among these nations, those that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. That was the caution that Moses gave back in Deuteronomy. Mingling with the wickedness of the world. It doesn't bring them up as often as it brings you down. It's typically sliding into lowest common denominators. And that's what we need to be worried about, careful over. So cleave. Cleave unto God. In verse 10, One man of you shall chase a thousand, if you'll do that. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you, as he hath promised you. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. That's it. That's all he asks. Cleave to him. Love him. Keep his commandments. Serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. And if you remain with him, he will forever remain with you. Joshua then warns them again against mixing with all of these nations among them. Says in verse 14, Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. I love that phrase. And someday we'll all be able to utter it. We'll look back at our patriarchal blessing and see that according to our faithfulness and the promises of God, not one thing has been withheld us. Someday we'll look back at a life of difficulty and challenge, but a, a life of incredible blessedness. And we'll know that not one thing that God had said has he withheld from us. Now, if that is true of the blessings of God, then prepare yourself because it's also true of the potential curses. There they were, Ebal Gerizim, right? Pep rally, blesses, curses, which will you choose? So verse 15, there's the other side of the reminder. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things, until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. You can't avoid the consequences either way. Blessings, curses, that was Moses for you, right? Some of his final parting words. I have set before you life and death, 
therefore choose life? Here Joshua is doing the same. He'll do it for an entire another chapter, and that's Joshua 24. Israel assembles before the tabernacle in Shiloh. Joshua briefly reviews their history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Exodus, Balaam, Balak, the journey through the wilderness, Jericho, the conquest of Canaan. He reviews the whole thing and then says in 13, I have given you a land for which ye did not labor. Does that sound familiar from Moses' earlier words? Cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and oliveyards which ye planted not, do ye eat. Now he doesn't add what Moses did, but I hope the memory was strong enough that they ended up filling in the blank themselves and heard themselves say what Moses had said to them. Beware lest ye forget the Lord. You're here now, living in cities you didn't build, eating from vineyards and oliveyards you didn't plant, drinking from wells you didn't dig. God made this relatively easy. Oh, don't make it hard on yourselves by forgetting him. Please remember, remember. He says in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. Serve ye the Lord. If you've been holding on to any of these lesser things, if you've been dragging false deities along the way, all the way back from Egypt, just let them go. Get, this is the last thing I can say to you. Get rid of those old bad habits. Repent, turn to the Lord, cleave to Him and to Him alone. The choice is yours, and it always has been. That all-important verse, verse 15, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord. That's a horrible translation, because who's going to say that's evil? The better translation, if it seem undesirable unto you to serve the Lord, if it seems unpleasant, if it seems inconvenient now and then to serve the Lord, then here's the, the choice I'm placing before you. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. What are the other options? Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or how about the more recent ones, the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. Choice is yours. And if you ever get tired of following the God of Israel, oh, there's plenty of other false gods that will vie for your affections. But that's on you. What's on me? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'll honor your agency, but I am here declaring mine. I've seen the gods of Egypt. I grew up there unlike you. I've seen the gods of the Amorites. We've passed through them all, along with you. And if you ever tire of the inconveniences of discipleship, there are plenty of other ways to live your life. So run the experiment if you choose to. Make up your mind. It's not going to change mine. I will serve the Lord. 
I pray that my whole household will choose to do likewise because I've seen what's on the other side and it's not worth holding on to. I had a student once struggling in his faith and he came to me and he said, you know, I've always been a faithful member of the church. I don't even know what life outside of the church would feel like, but I'm kind of curious. I just want to know if I left the church, would I even miss it? And I thought, okay, I've heard before about people wanting to go on so-called sabbatical. Unfortunately, it sometimes turns into early retirement. Uh, but if that's your choice, there's nothing I can do to stand in your way when all is said and done. But I will give you this caution. And I said to him, if you plan on leaving, if this is your experiment, if it seems inconvenient to stay in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you want to go scope out some gods from Egypt or gods from among the, the Amorites in whose land you dwell, if you just want to sink, settle in with everybody else around you and go the world's way, so be it. But, I said to him, if this is an experiment, an experiment make sure it's an honest one. Make sure there's a control group, because if you're only going to follow false gods in easy times, then, granted, you might not feel much of a difference. You might not miss God if all your needs seem to be met by other sources. But when life is hard and you miss grace, when you feel guilt and you miss forgiveness, when you feel lonely and miss the body of Christ and the gathering of the saints, when you are in need and people in that far country aren't so quick to come to your aid, yeah, you make sure your time apart includes hard times because then you might miss the goodness of God and the goodness of his people. As for me and my house, I think I'll stay right where I am. Well, verse 16, the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people. Therefore will we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. That is the perfect answer. How could we ever go back to Egypt or back to the Amorites? What? No, God is the one who has brought us here. He's brought us up to become like him, and with him we will stay. Well, such a beautiful sentiment. Will you follow through? Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression nor your sins. Oh, you can't serve God except by becoming more like him, to be as holy as he is, to be true to him as he is true to you. Will you do that? Really? I don't think you can. Now, is this reverse psychology? If it is, it seems to be working. In verse 21, the people said to Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. Okay, good, good. That's what I'm hoping for. 
overcome the natural man and woman. Really commit to do this. Verse 22, Joshua says to the people, Ye are witnesses against yourselves that ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they agreed. They said, yes, we are witnesses. I love the way he put that. You are witnesses against yourselves. You made a commitment. At the time, you were at your very best. Are you willing to bring that witness back to the stand when you are at your very worst? To me, there's something powerful about this. To make a a commitment, I've heard this said as the best definition of character I've ever heard. That character is the power or ability to follow through with a decision after the emotion of making the decision has passed. They're on a spiritual high right now. They've conquered the promised land. And it's choose you this day whom you will serve. And they're like, "We're, we're choosing this day. And we're going to serve the Lord. Okay, there's this emotion of making this great commitment, this covenant. Okay, what, what's going to happen when the emotion fades? And then you're facing a temptation. And the gods of the Amorites actually do seem rather appealing. At least the Amorites are. Ah, now what will we do? What will we do when it does seem a little inconvenient to stick to our covenants? Will we hold through? And what's interesting here is to say... I'd like to call past Jared to the witness stand. And here I am, present Jared, facing past Jared, as past Jared says to present Jared, come on, don't you remember? I do. I'm still living in this past moment, and it's an amazing moment. I feel the power of God confirming my decision. I feel the fire of faith alive within me. You may have forgotten in the meantime, but I have not. So look me in the eye. You can use any mirror you'd like and hold on to what I'm holding on to. Hold on to what I'm holding you to. There's something powerful about... That's, again, that's shelf number one. Revelation passed. That's a pillar of 12 stones by the Jordan River. There's an altar by Ebal and Gerizim. There's a tabernacle at Shiloh. There's an Ark of the Covenant with the covenant safe within. We have so many anchor points that we can sink into the stone and keep our rope from falling. We can hold on to all of those things in any crisis of faith. In verse 23, Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, There still may be a few. Eliminate those distractions. Get rid of those alternatives. And incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people agree. 24, they say to Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. I love their response, but I love even more Joshua's invitation. I I know your, your heart's in the right place. That's good. There's still some lingering things that have gone unresolved. We still have some Canaanites in the land. There's still territory to conquer. There's still a few false gods that you've been, or strange gods. Strange to me anyway. Why would you hold on to those? Uh, You've got to get rid of them. And as you do so, as you sanctify yourselves, fully purify yourself, one other piece of advice, please, please, incline your heart. I love the way he said that. Because we do live in a day of earthquakes in diverse places, of shaking of faith everywhere we look. 
But the thing I know about things that lean is that when shaking occurs, if they're going to fall, they fall in the direction they're leaning. There is, here's a time for a true confession. Uh, we had a swimming pool in our backyard in, in Southern California growing up. Practically everybody did. Uh, it's hot. And there was this brick wall between our, house, our yard and our neighbor's yard. And the, the brick wall was, I mean, within feet of the swimming pool, which made it a really great launching. We didn't have a diving board, but that was pretty close. Uh, and we could climb up on the, wall, the brick wall, and we'd be about, I don't know, six feet off the ground. And then you could jump over the walkway, uh, if you cleared it, and jump into the pool from this, from this brick wall. It was great. Uh, exciting. I don't know if my, our parents knew about that. Sorry, mom and dad. Uh, but really, sorry to the neighbors, because guess what happened? You had to push off the wall far enough to clear the walkway around the swimming pool. And with enough force to push you into the swimming pool, well, opposite forces and reactions and so on, right, Newton? Uh, it ended up pushing the wall. And because we were pushing so hard against the wall, pretty soon it started to lean into the neighbor's yard, okay? I don't think it was enough to be truly visible. I hope not anyway. Uh, but it was leaning in that direction. And guess what? When one of those Southern California earthquakes hit, the wall came a-tumbling down. Anyone want to guess into whose yard it fell? Yeah, it fell into the neighbor's yard, not ours. Why? because it was leaning in that direction, thanks to us. Sorry, neighbors. Now, what's, I'm, what I'm getting at here in verse 23 is if in a day of earthquakes in diverse places and shaking faith, Joshua, he seems to sense what they're up against. He had his own crisis of faith himself, right? When he struggled after the battle of Ai and what, what are we going to do? I know your commitment is there and your heart's in the right place, but do you have any idea what you're up against in a long life of faith? So, yes, hold on to it. Do your best. Eliminate distractions and alternatives. But if you can't yet fix your heart in gospel ground, can you at least incline it in the Lord's direction? Because if you can incline your heart unto the Lord, then when you struggle and if you fall, you'll fall into His open arms. You'll fall onto His side of the line. Yes, you'll be struggling. And yes, you'll wonder and worry. But you'll be with Him. My worry is for people who, whose hearts are inclined in the opposite direction who lean towards the world. Because when the shaking comes, they'll fall too, but they'll fall in the world's direction. I don't know who's going to be there to help pick them up. Well, I do. People who come from the Lord's side over on rescue missions. But best of, the best thing you can do, lean toward the Lord. Incline your heart to Him. A few last things then. Verse 25. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. 
I love all those details. There's going to be a covenant, a statute, an ordinance. I'm going to write this down, this covenant that we've made together. We're going to, we're going to set it in stone, literally. There's going to be a great stone. If that's not strong enough, let's put it by an oak. You remember the, the Ark of the Covenant was made of shatim wood, acacia, because it's such a strong, hard wood. Well, oak is really hard and strong, too. We're going to put that by the sanctuary. We're, we're, again, we're trying to create all these witnesses, things that will stand the test of time in hopes of encouraging us to do likewise. In verse 27, Joshua says to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us. For it hath heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. Yes, I want your past self to be a witness to your present self. But just in case you, you lose that connection, there will still be stones of witness all around you. Evidence of the hand of God in our lives. And hopefully that will jolt us back into memory. Anytime we think of forgetting the Lord our God. Israel then is dismissed. Class dismissed. A mission accomplished. You can now go back to your tribal inheritances. They do. After all, that's where the real work of service and sacrifice and obedience and raising a righteous generation, that's where all of that's going to happen anyway. Joshua then dies. He's buried. Speaking of burial, Joseph, way back, remember Joseph in Egypt? Who'd said, yeah, do not leave me here. When you finally leave and get back to the promised land, I haven't seen it since I was a 17-year-old kid. I'll never see it again, but make sure my bones are buried there. That is the land of my inheritance eternally, and I want to eternally rest there. And so they buried Joshua they rebury Joseph. They've been carrying his bones all this time since they left Egypt under the direction of Moses. And then verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. How long will our obedience last? How long our faith? How long our testimony? Well, that's the answer. Those things tend to last as long as our memory of God. And so, will we do those things? Will we choose this day to serve the Lord? To keep Him in constant remembrance? Will we do whatever it takes? Will we meditate upon His Word day and night? Will we make sure it comes from our mouth frequently? Will we set up pillars of stones? Will we, will we do all within our power to remember the hand of God in our lives? He's been showing us that hand throughout the whole process. As we studied this book of Joshua this week, we saw some strange strategies. How on earth are we going to conquer the promised land? Oh, just march around it a bunch of times and blow some trumpets and shout. Huh? Oh, just trust me. How are we going to do this? I'll oh, just, just follow my direction. When you think about the, the strange strategies God has given each of us, 
you want an eternal family, then get together on a Monday night and sing some songs and play a few games. Have some treats. Wait, huh? Yeah. Sounds like a strange strategy, but it works. You want the walls of people's lives to come down so that you can reach out to them in love. Oh, surround them with spiritual strength. Just be kind. Be good neighbors. Really? That's all it takes? Sounds too simple. It's pretty simple, all right. But will you do it? Will you trust me enough? All of those small and simple things the Lord asks of us to do and places them before us with the choice to make. My friends, the choice is ours. Where will we lean? And who will we look to? I testify of a God of Israel, a God over all the earth, who loves us enough to lead us home, who doesn't care about our past, even the Rahabs of the world, and just wants to save us in Israel. A God who wants to stop the river from rushing down upon us and just open the way if we'll just pass the covenant so that we can come unto him. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I'm grateful for the choices that you're making. I pray that I am making the right choice myself. And know that as I hold on to God, he will hold on to me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <laughs>